Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. of the Old School Primitive Baptist. This is Elder D. Martin, Sr. Stay tuned for another gospel message of God's free and sovereign grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is the testimony of Paul's vision. Now, Paul saw a couple of visions, uh, and he heard a, a couple of things that no other men uh, have heard. Number one, he, he heard the voice of Christ. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that in there, you'll find that Paul was the only one on the Damascus Road on that experience that he had that heard the voice of Christ. And you'll find also that in uh, Paul's uh, writings as well, that he was seen after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus, of more than 500 brethren after his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. Now, here's something to keep in mind. If the Bible says he was seen of more than 500 brethren, he wasn't seen of more than 500 people. He wasn't seen of more than 500 just common folk. He was seen of more than 500 brethren. He was revealed only to the brethren, to those who were believers. And you know something? That nothing has changed. This same Jesus that's the same yesterday, today, and forever is still only revealed to the brethren and sisters. But to those that are called, elected, chosen, ordained, appointed heirs of divine grace, he ain't revealed to anybody else. Oh, yeah, they know about him because of the history of the, the Christian religion. Many know about Jesus. It's like the woman that worked at the store and I went to and I was standing in line. And I, I said this to you before, but I'll say it again. I went through the line and I was very zealous at that time and trying to tell people about what had happened to me, about Jesus Christ and him as the only Savior of sinners. And this, this woman who was the cashier had a cross around her neck. And uh, uh, I said, oh, I see you have a cross. I said, are you a Christian? And she says, oh, well, aren't we all? And I said, no, no, we're not. Not, not all people are Christians. She says, oh, I thought if you was an American, you was a Christian. I said, no, no. I said, it was founded upon Christian principles, but I said, everyone that lives in this country called America 
is not a Christian. A Christian is one who believes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and solely upon him uh, for salvation alone. And she looked at me with a very puzzled look. And you'd be surprised how many people were out there just like that. They're religious but lost. Religious but lost by the multitudes. But the Apostle Paul in the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians I'm going to start reading here and read about his experience and what he saw that no other man had seen at this particular time uh, in uh, the dispensation of the fullness of time, uh, at least it was recorded. It says, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up in the third heaven. He's talking about himself. And I knew a man, (laughs) he says, that he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into, into paradise and heard unspeakable words. He heard unspeakable words that could not be corresponded or communicated by the means of the human nature. And the Bible says, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. He said, of such a one of which I heard, which I cannot even speak of the things I heard, I want to glory in him and what I heard from him. And he says, the only thing that I want to glory in is nothing but my infirmities. Huh? Infirmities? Now listen to this. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, So what he had heard that was unspeakable by his uh, intellectual ability, it was such a spiritual revelation uh, that God had revealed to him, uh, that was spoke to him, that uh, he, he couldn't even, uh, he couldn't even uh, relate to another mortal. But he says, But rather than for me to glory in what I saw and what was revealed to me, there had been given to me a thorn in the flesh, listen to this now, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. You mean God would take and send a messenger of Satan, a demon, to buffet an elect chosen? called heir of divine grace to buffet them? He did Paul. He 
professor right here, he says that he sent a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He sent a messenger of Satan uh, to him, uh, to infirm him, listen, uh, with a thorn in the flesh. He had a physical infirmity that he had to deal with all of the rest of his life that was brought upon him by God's sovereign power through a messenger of Satan. Satan is under the divine control of an almighty sovereign God and can do nothing apart from what God determines him to do. Now you need to get that in your mind. Satan ain't out here under every leaf ready to jump on us and, uh, and uh, rob us of the victory we have in Christ. No! Satan is under the divine uh, power of God Almighty who created him initially and who only allows him to go a certain distance and uh, can only cause uh, any problems, issues, and afflictions upon God's people as God determines by his sovereign almighty ability. The Bible says, for this thing, listen now, Paul says, for this thing, this thorn in the flesh I have, this infirmity, this problem I have, uh, that I have, I sought the Lord, I besought the Lord three times. Thrice, the Bible says. I sought the Lord thrice. That's three. I sought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. I didn't like this thorn in the flesh, Paul says. I didn't want it. It, it was anguish to me. Uh, it would cause me pain. It would cause me suffering. It would cause me uh, hindrance at times, whatever it was. I don't know what the thorn was. There have been many speculations and many assumptions, but I'm not going to even try to say what it was. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was something that greatly hindered him uh, in, as far as being in the flesh. But he says, I sought the Lord about it three times that it might depart from me. And listen to verse 9. And he said unto me, here's what the Lord said to him. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now listen to that, folks. Jesus Christ said to Paul, that he says, my grace is sufficient for thee, and his grace is sufficient for you as a child of God. And he says, for my strength, God's strength, the power of Almighty God by the Spirit is made perfect in weakness. I have said this so many times that I, I hear myself echoing it, that when we are at our best in the, in the natural, when we feel our best and our bodies are free from any kind of pain or suffering, we are usually the furthest from God. Now you think about it. But when we have an affliction come upon us or we have some anguish of mind or heart come upon us, whether we lost a loved one or someone has departed to us unexpectedly, we weren't prepared for, and it breaks our heart, and we just fall and weep in anguish, whatever. The Bible says that 
in those times and experiences that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Because there are times when, of all times, we call upon God Almighty to help us and to come and deliver us from our anguish and our sadness and our grief. The Bible says, and Paul says, I would rather, listen to this now, are you ready to say this? I would rather glory in my infirmities. Would you rather glory in your infirmities? Your pains and heartaches and sufferings and and problems you're dealing with? I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Oh, brother, that's some spiritual death that Paul was talking about. That was some really some depth of revelation to be able to say that, oh, I, I'd, I'd rather glory, I'd rather thank God for my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, may we have such an experience of God's Spirit that even in our affliction, whatever it might be, that the power of Christ might rest upon us. And then Paul goes on to say, verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. You mean to tell me he liked them? Compared to not having Christ, the power of God upon him and within him? Yes, he did. He liked his infirmities. Because if it took the infirmities to have the power of God, and the grace of God, and the love of God, and the mercy of God, then it was worth it all. He goes on to say, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, and in reproaches, and in necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I owe brothers and sisters, in my 68 years of living, I have come to conclude that is a true thing. When I am weak, then am I spiritually strong. I told you all ago, when we're at our best, we feel the best emotionally, we feel the best uh, physically, we're usually the furthest from God. But the Bible says, as Paul said, he said, but when I'm weak, then am I strong. When I'm weak in body, when I hurt, when I'm going through a distressing situation emotionally, and I'm just beside myself. I'm depressed beyond, uh, beyond understanding. I feel like there's no hope for me at all. But then, then, grace does this perfect work. It comes, and it comes in waves that God disperses to his children and causes us to lay hold upon Christ and look at him and behold him who, who, has suffered all the reproaches that man could ever experience on the cross of Calvary. He who was taken by the wicked and cruel hands of men as it was determined of God Almighty and put upon the cross of Calvary, nailed his hands to the, to the cross bars of the, of the cross and nailed his ankles to the vertical beam of that, of that cross and then took, and with a sword, one of the soldiers took and swapped across his belly and his blood and his guts and come flowing out of his mortal frame. Oh, has any suffered and likened unto that that our Savior went through? No. No. 
If you read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, you will find the sufferings of our, of our Savior. Oh, he took and he took upon himself all of, of those sufferings for us. And the Bible says he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. How did he become sin for us? God laid upon him on the cross of Calvary every one of the sins of God's elect family on the body of Christ Jesus. On his body he carried our sin and he suffered there and his blood atonement once and for all paid for all of the sins of God's church down through the ages of time. Then Paul says, he says in verse 11, I am become a fool in glory. In other words, he says, it, might, it appears that I've become really, really kind of uh, foolish in glory. But he says, ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind but the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. In other words, he, he, he's really nothing. And, and though he's been exalted by many as the chiefest of apostles, because of what he had been revealed, and his Damascus Road experience and conversion, and from where he came from, from, from uh, being a rank a rebel uh, Judaism, uh, advocate to being a Christian, believing on the person of Christ after that Damascus Road experience, he says, you know, now people look at me like I'm the cheapest, cheapest of the apostles, but I'm really nothing. He says in verse 12, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds, for what is it wherein... Uh, ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that I myself not burdensome to you, for give me this wrong. He says, of all the things I've been through, of all the things, I've been imprisoned. He says, I've suffered, what do he say up here? He says, I have suffered reproaches. I I uh, have been through persecutions. I've been through uh, great distresses and all of these things. And he says, I did so, but yet I made it through. And I can glory in nothing but Christ, in Christ Jesus. Now, in Romans, I invite you to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, eighth chapter. Romans chapter eight. I want to pick up here in Romans chapter eight along the same topic that Paul talked about here in the eleventh chapter of Second Corinthians, and that is in reference to infirmities. We all have infirmities. We can't escape this life without infirmities. I'm going to start reading. Let's see here. Verse 22 of chapter 8 of Romans. Romans 8:22. For we know 
that the whole creation groaneth with tr- and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Now, buddy, you mentioned this earlier, that, that those who have been afflicted with a stroke, for instance, that cannot even speak, of which I know, I know a sister right now that can't speak other than just utter some noises, like, uh, 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 and that's about it. She can't swallow anything but ice from water that, that melts in her mouth. But the Bible says that, that even the whole creation groaneth, and even we ourselves groan within ourselves. In other words, there's times when we are in such despair and such pain uh, in, in our mortal realm here that we, we don't even know what to say. But yet we groan, and then we and, and groans uh, in, in regard to the spiritual realm come from the heart and soul. God will cause you to groan when you can't speak. And the Bible says that uh, we groan, waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our body. We're waiting for the redemption of the body. Now, what does that mean? Redemption of the body. That means that our body is going to be transformed from mortal uh, body to an immortal body, likened unto that which Jesus had after his resurrection. Paul goes on to say, For we are saved by hope. And but hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see hope that ain't hope. Okay? Because hope can't be seen. Hope is uh, the substance of things hoped for, or that's what faith is, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. If you can see it, it's not of faith. If you can see it, it's not of hope. Hope is hope. Hope is looking for something that has been promised you, uh, and we have the earnest of that expectation by the Holy Spirit that is given within us to believe on Christ. We have a portion of that which is yet to come when our whole body will be transformed. And Paul goes on to say, For we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? In other words, if you saw Christ standing here today, it doesn't take faith to believe upon him. You see him as he is. When we get to heaven, beloved brethren, in immortal glory, faith is no longer going to be used in the realm of eternity. We don't need it then, because we're going to see him as he is. We, we need it now to see him as he is with the spiritual eye from the heart and soul of the inward man. But the Bible says, Paul said in verse 25, but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Oh, I have a hope in Jesus and for what he's done for me, and what he's going to do for me yet to come. I'm hoping because I haven't seen it yet, but I'm waiting to have it experienced. And then when it's experienced, brother buddy, it ain't going to be hope no more. We're not going to hope, and I'm going to need faith. Those elements will be gone. We hope and have faith in this time world only. For 
Bible says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now, he said, as I read to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, about, he says, uh, when I am weak, then I'm as strong. He says right in here, he says, for, it says, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. And it does. In our infirmities comes that blessed power of the grace and the mercy of God to help us in the times of need. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. <clears throat> you know, people say, and I, I know they mean well, I've said it, I know you've said it, uh, well, pray for me, or pray for them, pray for so-and-so. Well, how do you pray? What are you supposed to say? Do we, do we say, Lord, heal them, raise them up? That is our desire, but it's a selfish desire. If we was just to say, Lord, in regard to so-and-so's situation, may they be reconciled to that and may your will be done, and nip it right there. That's enough. That's enough. But we as mortals and are, are uh, sensitive and, and uh, uh, a lot of times sentimental of heart, we get into deeper prayers and say, Lord, just touch your body and raise her up and so forth. Well, maybe maybe it ain't God's will they be raised up. Maybe they got to be afflicted with that stroke that they've encountered the rest of their time in this world. Who knows but God Almighty? I, I, I'll be truthful. I don't know how to pray often. People say, well, well pray that so-and-so might be healed. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. But I'll say to the person that would say that to me, well, maybe God don't want them healed. And then they look at you like you're some stupid maniac. They said, oh, well, God wants all his, his people to be in good health. And, and then, of course, that goes down the same line of God wants all his people to be prosperous. Everybody's supposed to have a, a nice new home and drive Cadillacs. I mean, that's a lie of the devil. That garbage you hear on television about the prosperity gospel is a, the devil. And let me tell you something right now. You ain't never been to church until you go to some of the third world countries where they ain't got nothing but a tin shack and a thatched roof over their head with no windows except for just an opening cut in the side of the of the metal uh, shack building. And when they gather together to have church underneath an old building that's a pole barn with a thatched roof on it, and they begin to sing a cappella hymns uh, that they had been taught down through the years in the islands over there in uh, say, uh, St. Vincent and Martinique and Granada, Trinidad, and some of the places. I know some brethren down there. And when they go to have church, bro, they have church. It ain't fancy, but it is spiritual. Because they don't have nothing to glory in. What they have is a hope. What they have is a faith that's in a Christ who promised to seek him and save him and bless them with the knowledge of that. And uh, they're looking forward to being delivered from this uh, world here below. And Paul goes on to say, he says, But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Oh, the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within us. Even when we cannot, I've been so sick sometimes, 
I remember one time I was sick, I, I had the flu. I mean, I was sicker than a dog. I laid there in bed, and, and I, I just, I, I, I didn't know what to say and how to pray. I just laid there and went, oh, 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 my whole body hurts. I was throwing up. I had diarrhea. I had a temperature. I was kind of delirious. I didn't know how to pray and couldn't. But I could just go, oh, and the spirit within me, I believe, groaned. And the Bible says, with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit, because he maketh intercession for us, the saints, for the saints, according to the will of God. Not according to our will. Not according to our will. But he makes intercession for the saints of God according to his will. And he still does that today. And he's going to do that until the end of time. He's going to make intercession for us according to his will. And it's his will that is going to be done, whether we like it or not. And sometimes we don't like it. You think, you think Paul liked the thorn in the flesh? No, but he said, hey, look, uh, as far as having this thorn in the flesh, uh, I'd rather have it and have Christ uh, be upon me and in me than, than be without it and not have Christ. I was at a nursing home one time, and there was a young man in there that was about 25 years old that was in an automobile wreck, and uh, he was paralyzed from his uh, neck, let's see, pretty much from his chest down. I believe he had, uh, I believe he had uh, use of one arm. But the rest of his body, because of a broken back and spinal injuries, he, he was a, a paraplegic on the most part, except for just the upper, he could talk, he could, he could swallow, and, and all he had the use of one arm because he used to run an electric wheelchair. And, and I saw this, this young man in there, and I talked to him one time because I was there visiting somebody, and I, I had my Bible with me, and he asked me if I was a minister, and I said, oh, yes, I am. And, and we got talking there, and he said, well, I'm a Christian. I said, well, praise the Lord. I said, well, how are you doing in, in your situation? He says, well, I'm doing okay, considering, you know, I'm hindered, of course, with my body. But he says, you know something? I'll never forget this. He says, you know something? I'd rather be in this wheelchair with my body like it is and know Jesus Christ than to have a whole body and able to walk out of here like you're going to do in a few minutes. I'll never forget that. But what a sacrifice. You say sacrifice, but, but it's the Spirit of God that's within him that caused him to say such a thing. It ain't something he desired. Every mortal wants to go walking out and do things that they normally do in, in natural life. But he can't. Never will. Had to wear a diaper. Had nurses wait on him hand and foot. But he said, I'd rather be like this. And know Jesus. I'll never forget that. Paul goes on to say, in verse 27, He that searches the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. And that's God. He searches the hearts. You know, we don't know the hearts of men. 
You know, somebody would say, would have said to, uh, to me when I was about 25 years old, there ain't no way that guy's ever going to be a Christian. He's as ornery as a snake, got a foul, nasty mouth. He'd steal anything he'd get his hands on. He just, he, he drinks and everything else. That was me. And here I am standing up here reading out of God's holy word and preaching wherever I had opportunity and wherever a door is open, I go. And for 40 years almost now, I've been, been trying to preach out of this book uh, because of God's transforming grace and loving mercy upon a sinner like me. You don't know the hearts of men. Those who seem to be the least candidates to be a Christian oftentimes are some of the strongest Christians that God's put breath in, in time. Look at Paul. Paul is a perfect example of that. Verse 28. This is probably one of the most popular verses, but misunderstood verses there is in the Bible. Listen to it. And we know that all things, how many things? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now let me let me let me break this down a little bit. Now we know that number one, all things, not some things. I had a woman challenge me on that one time at a primitive Baptist church. Because I said that I believed all things work together for good. To them to love God and all the called according to his purpose. And she said, Now, Brother Martin, do you mean that all things work together? What about a child that's born with some kind of a uh, physical infirmity or or, or somebody who uh, gets uh, sickly and uh, uh, has a stroke or uh, you know, all these things were together? I said, I believe that just like the Bible says, all things work together for good. We may not like it. We may not understand it at a particular time. But in time, I believe we will understand that it has and will work together for our good. And Paul said, I don't like the thorn in the flesh. But I, I'll tell you what, it's working together for my good, and therefore I'll glory in it. I'm going to glory in this thorn in the flesh. I'm going to glory in my, my poor eyesight. I'm going to glory in the fact that I've got some uh, disease in my body that I've got to take medication for the rest of my life. I'm going to glory in it that I might have Christ and his spirit rest upon me. We know that all things work together, together. A number of things will come together to work together for good, for good. It ain't for bad, it's for good. All things work together for good to them that love God. Now that is the key right there. Do you love God? This is not written to the world. This is not written to the unregenerate masses that make up those out here that's out here uh, today riding motorcycles and jet skiing and, and out here hunting instead of being in a church meeting where God's people are meeting. This is written to God's children. He says that all things work together for good to them that love God. And let me tell you something. I'm convinced that a day that love God ought to be where God's people are at when it comes time to meet. I don't get tired of saying that, and you can run me off if you get tired of hearing it. I believe when it comes time to go to a meeting 
the word has been designated that we ought to meet together to divinely attempt to worship God, we need to be there. Where else is more important to you? Well, what else is of a priority to you? You answer that question. I can't answer it for you. I can't answer it for, for those who are not here present today that are members of this church. Why aren't they here? I, I can't answer their question. Do they love God or do they not? I don't know. God only knows the hearts. But it appears to me that if a person loves God, they need to be where God's people gather. Because where God's people gather, the Bible says God will be in their midst. I want to be where God is going to be. And I believe that's where God's people are going to be gathered. Don't you? He says, for them that love God. That's the prerequisite to things that are working together for good is that they love God. Okay, don't forget that. That's not to the world. It's to God's people chosen, called of God, that believe in Christ by divine mercy and sovereign grace. They believe and love God. To them who are, listen to this now, this is the second thing, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, it's one thing to love God, but are you called according to his purpose? You say, well, can people love God and not be called? I believe there's a lot of people that are religionists that say they love God, but ain't called. Well, what happened what Jesus said? Many are called, but few are chosen. What do you mean by that? In other words, when the gospel goes out, Wherever it might go out, and, and, and though it be proclaimed to many mortals, only those with hearing ears spiritually are going to believe it and endorse it and embrace it. Because the Bible says, they that be of God heareth God's word. They that be not of God heareth not the word of God. Just as simple as that. Just, just as simple as that. And those that are called according to his purpose are going to hear his word. They're going to believe it. And it's going to be received into the heart. And it's going to be the evidence of the experience of salvation. You say, what is the evidence of salvation? Number one, you love and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, your priorities have changed. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's become a what? New creature. He ain't the same old person he used to be. He's a new creature. And he says that old things are passed away. Behold, old things become new. That means that the things that the old guy used to do, like me, uh, I used to smoke, but I quit doing that before I become a Christian believer, thank God. But I, I don't have no time in cigarettes. Everybody knows that kill kill you in time. They're not good for you. It's poison to you. But anyway, I drank. I drank like a fish. He's, uh, I used to work in construction as a young man. We'd get off, go to the bar, play pool, get drunk, and, and, and time after time. And, and then, But when Christ got a hold of me, I didn't want to do those things no more. And what I wanted to do was learn more about this 
this Christ that had, had come in and transformed my life and changed my heart and my mind. I become a new creature, and, and old things passed away, and behold, all things become new. I become a new daddy to my children. I become a new husband to my wife. I wasn't the same old husband who would come home drunk and want to argue and, and, and be ornery and cantankerous. I got in more trouble because of alcohol than anything I ever did in my life. Those that are called on God, according to his purpose and the evidence of it, I say, is that they're a new creature. They're changed. They're transformed. And Paul goes on to say, verse 29, for whom, whom he did foreknow. Paul says, for whom God Almighty did foreknow. You say, well, don't he foreknow everybody? Yes, he does, but he foreknows especially those whom he has called and chosen, appointed, and elected unto his church bride. But he says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did what? He predestinated. He said, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to be, you say, what's the evidence of if salvation, if you've experienced it? You're going to be, what? You're going to be changed. You're going to be conformed. Conformed is a progressive work of God's grace in the believer. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we become more, uh, more in, in desire to be more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus every day, but yet I fail. And we will fail as long as we have this flesh and blood body in here that are walking around here because of the, of the depravity of Adam's curse is still upon this flesh. It still has desires to do things that ain't good. But yet there's something in us that has dominion over that which we once had. The Bible says that they that be in Christ are no longer a slave to sin. And sin shall not have dominion over you. Now that's the key. It ain't that we're not going to sin no more. It's that sin don't have dominion over you. That means that sin don't reign. Sin don't have its total work. Sin don't rule your life. It is, it, it is those things that we do that are minimal in the regarding our uh, behavior as people in this time world as believers in Jesus Christ. Sin don't rule us no more. And that's the evidence of being those that are called, chosen, and elected God and predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. In verse 30, moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, and let me tell you something, we've got a justifier that takes and justifies us totally and completely. Paul said, as he writes earlier in the book of Romans, he says, Christ is the justifier of the unjust. We are not justified in our natural state. We're unjust. We are depraved. We are born under the curse of sin because of the nature of Adam in us. 
even those that are not yet born, still, when they are born and come from their mother's womb, they are sinners from birth. Somebody says to me, well, when is a person come to the age of accountability? Well, I'll tell you what, when they come out of their mother's womb and they're a living, breathing human being, they're accountable. But you say, how could they be? Because they're a sinner. They're a sinner. You say, well, you mean all babies, uh, how can they believe on Christ? Let me say this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do as some I've heard preachers say this and I've been accused of it, but I want to set the record straight. I do not believe that babies are going to hell because they can't profess Jesus Christ as Savior or they have not been baptized by immersion. But I believe this that every elect baby that God has chosen before the foundation of the world is going to be in heaven and glory. Whether they're aborted or whatever, if they're elect, they're going to be in heaven and glory. Now, that's a, I believe that with all my heart. Because only the elect of God are going to go to heaven. And I cannot tell you and find scriptural support to, to stand on to say that every baby's going to go to heaven. But I can say this, that I believe that every one of God's elect are going to heaven, whether they be a baby or 90 years old, they're going to be in heaven. And I can tell you where that's said in the Bible, as I'm reading it to you right now. Everyone that he has called, everyone that he has foreknew, everyone that he predestinated, everyone uh, that, uh, he, that he has justified, that, I don't care how old they are. There's no age group here. They are the ones that are going to be, listen, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. He's going to glorify every elect baby, every elect 90-year-old person uh, that makes it to heaven's glory. As an elect of God, uh, they're going to be there among that number. The Bible says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I'm going to stop right there. If God be for us, who can be against us? I don't care if the whole world says they don't believe the Bible and believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. I don't care because it don't change it one iota. And the fact that Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners is the truth of the matter, no matter who believes it or how many. But I do know this much. As many as God has chosen and has called out of this time world to be his church, to be the elect and appointed heirs of divine, free, and sovereign grace uh, that are able to hear with a hearing ear and believe with the intellectual mind, they're going to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm persuaded of that. But to those who are mentally incompetent and those who are newborn, I leave it in the hands of God that his election shall stand sure and never be altered. His elect shall be in immortal glory. I bank my soul on that and on the word of God and leave it at that. And as far as assumptions and speculations on other aspects of 
uh, what about this and what about that? If the Bible don't say it and it's not backed up by Scripture, I'm going to leave it alone because a lot of stuff is speculation. It's like Brother Buddy was saying uh, about the analogy of Esau and uh, Jacob. Uh, you can take many, many things in Scripture and make analogies of them. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can draw analogies from them as types and shadows of a spiritual truth, but that does not make what that particular text is saying applicable as the fact of the matter in that particular text. And I won't debate them. If it ain't clear, well, what's the sense of debating them? Neither one of us have a scripture to back up scripture. I might as well shut up. We're wasting our time. But if anything, somebody's going to go away mad. I mean, I've been into those arguments before. Uh, I refuse to get into them. The Scripture's able to interpret Scripture. And if it don't, leave it alone. Because God ain't been pleased to reveal it to you yet. Yet. He's the only revelator. That's going to give you an understanding of the truth. Not me, but the Holy Spirit. May God bless you. Let's pray together. of the Old School Primitive Baptist. This is Elder D. Martin, Sr. Stay tuned for another gospel message of God's free and sovereign grace. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 1, and it says this, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance uh, that of patience and godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop right there 
at verse 8. I want to focus in especially on verse 4. Peter, writing this second letter to the churches of where he had ministered to, he says in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding, that means many, a multitude, many great and precious promises. And I want to take and focus in on just that phrase, that God has given to us that believe in Christ by the grace and the mercy of God. He has given to us, the Bible says, as Peter says, great and precious promises. Now, let me say this. The promises of God, uh, they are permanent. They are unchangeable. They are immutable, meaning that they cannot be altered nor changed, and they shall come to pass. Every one of the promises of God from the book of, the, the book of Genesis to the last book of the book of Revelation Every promise that God had given his prophets to explain and express and proclaim uh, has come to pass uh, up until this present time of which we are in existence. Every promise. Every promise that he gives the prophets of old to Jeremiah and Isaiah uh, about uh, Israel and about their rebellious attitude and about God's judgment upon them, it came to pass, didn't it? And they, all the promises from the uh, prophets of old and regarding a coming Messiah, that there was going to be one coming out of the tribe of Judah. There was going to be one coming who was called the branch. There was going to be one coming that was going to be the good shepherd that David talked about in Psalm 23 when he said, The Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of them. They shall know my voice and follow me. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That the promises of God is that he's going to have a sheep, and those sheep are going to be those that uh, are known of him, and that he's going to be their good shepherd, and they're going to know his voice and follow him. You say, well, that's if they decide to. No, 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 no. It does not say anywhere in the Scripture as to where God's sheep have the ability to decide to follow him or not. It says that I know my sheep, and they shall follow me. They're not going to try to follow me. They're going to follow him because he is going to cause them to follow him. That is the difference from what we hear mostly preached today and what we stand for as far as the gospel truth among the old Baptists. We believe in a God that is unlimited, almighty, and absolute in all of his workings in around and through the children of men and through the creatures of which he has chosen to save some out of the ruin of all mankind. But we know that in uh, in the beginning, when Adam was born, and uh, he gave himself a wife, made from his one of his ribs, 
to be a helpmeet. And uh, she, being deceived, fell, and he followed into the fall of disobedience. And upon that disobedient and rebellious action, a sin fell upon the bloodline heritage of all of the human race from that moment on. For the Bible said that God said that if you partake of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. And he died spiritually. Though Adam and Eve lived physically, they died spiritually and without a fellowship with God from that time on. And from that time on, man has had a rebellious and sinful, deceitful heart and shall have until God, by sovereign mercy and grace, comes and transforms one and makes them a new creature in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as I read to you, that he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And some of these promises, I'm going to just give you a few of them. Number one, that God has a people. He's promised to have a people and these people shall be out of every tongue, kindred, and nation of peoples upon the earth. Even from the furthest islands of the sea, God shall have a people throughout the generations of time. And these people shall be those that shall believe upon his darling son and the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came solely to seek and save sinners and to redeem them by his precious blood and his body put upon that cross on Calvary in our behalf. For that blood and that sacrificial body of the God-man, Jesus Christ, is particular, and I re reiterate, is particular in its application. For the blood of Jesus Christ was not shed upon that cross for the sins of the entire world of mankind. Now listen to me a minute. You say, whoa, wait a minute. If that's the case, if Jesus Christ's blood was shed on the cross for and in behalf of the sins of all of mankind, then all of mankind, man, woman, boy, or girl, born of woman's womb, in throughout the ages of time, shall be automatically saved from their sin. If Jesus Christ died for all people everywhere throughout the ages and generations of the human race, then everyone's going to heaven. Now, there are some folks that believe that. Matter of fact, there's some up in, in eastern Kentucky and in Virginia uh, that believe that, and uh, uh, they're called no-hellers. No, they are no-heller Baptists. They believe that the atonement and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross has paid the price for the sins of all mankind. Now, uh, it, is, it is a doctrine that comes from the ignorance of man not, not reading the Bible. For the Bible says that John, when he writes in his gospel, he says that Jesus Christ uh, has shed his blood uh, to be a ransom for many. Now, many is not the totality of mankind. And the Bible says that Jesus uh, says, as I read, uh, told you earlier in John chapter 10, for I'm the good shepherd, 
and I have my sheep. I have chosen them, and they uh, are chosen to be my sheep, and they shall know my voice, and they shall follow me. Now, all mankind are not the sheep of God. Now, listen to me, man. People get the mindset that God has made this provision, and now it's up to the individual to make the decision and the choice to either believe it or, or not believe it. Now, if that's the case, uh, then Jesus Christ is a failure when, when it comes to seeking and saving those whom the Father has given him. The Bible says, Jesus said, that all that the Father has given me shall come to me. Now, is that all of mankind? No, you don't see the majority of mankind coming to Christ. You see just the opposite. We see more and more of a downgrade of those who believe in Christ. We see more and more of a downgrade of those who desire to go and worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to be under the sound of the gospel of the grace and love and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Do you realize that in 1970 that there was about 70% of the population of the people of the United States attended a worship assembly somewhere that was called Christian? And do you realize that in 2010 there was a poll taken and there's now only 44 or 45% of the multitude of the population of the United States that uh, give lip service to attending a, a worship service that has anything to do with Christianity. Uh, what's happened here, folks? I'll tell you what's happened. We have become a self-centered, individualistic, spoiled society of people, and we have turned our way from God and went our own way of materialism and selfishness. That's where we're at today. That's why the church houses ain't full. Uh, for Brother Earl, you as a young man, you can remember when uh, the old old cabin meeting house and probably even this one was full at one time. There wasn't a seat probably to be found. Father, did you ever remember times when, when there was that, that many folks here? You don't remember that many? Uh, do you remember, was you, was you, did you go to the log cabin building? I have heard of many, many old Baptist churches that uh, it was standing room only back in in the early 1900s, 1920, 1930s, basically around the time of the, the Great Depression when folks didn't have nothing. You know what that caused them to do? To rely on one another and the need to help one another. And, and people began to be more of a loving and kind neighbor uh, than they are today. We become so self-centered and individualistically minded, we don't need anybody. That, that's what's happened to us. But to those to whom God has given the Father, I mean, as God the Father has given the Son, they are those who He's come to seek and to save. Now, when I talk about God's sheep, there are two different analogies in the Bible regarding uh uh, God's people. One is the aspect that there are God's sheep and there are God's what's called wheat. And then on the other side of the spectrum, 
there are goats, and on the other side of the aspect of wheat, there are tares. Who knows what tares are? Tares is the shaft or the wasted part of the of the uh, plant that is of no value. Wheat has a kernel in it. That's what we're after. The shaft, the, we don't want them to do with. That's the tear. That's what is, is no work. God has sheep and he has wheat, and yet there are goats, and goats ain't God's chosen people. And there's, only, there's two kinds of people. There's those that are chosen in Christ by God the Father and given to him to seek him to save, and there are those that are not, which are the goats. And are they uh, tares, which uh, God talks about? The Bible says also, Jesus said, don't go trying to determine and decipher who is a wheat and who is a tear, for by doing so, you may harm uh, some of my wheat. In other words, don't you go trying to decipher the hearts of men as to who are my chosen people, who are the elect of God, the ordained of God, the appointed heirs of grace, the children of God that are chosen in Christ by the Father that Christ came to seek and to save. Don't you go try to determine who they are. You just go forth and preach the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's good news. And what is in that good news? That Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners. And the, the good news is that it's by grace. For we're saved by grace. Now, do you realize what grace encompasses? The definition of grace is unmerited favor. That means it's undeserving. You can't earn it. But it's just favor brought upon you by God Almighty, not because of anything you have done or could ever do. You cannot earn salvation. You say, well, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. I, <laughs> let me tell you something. I've heard that most of my life. Well, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. And you know something? I've come to this place. When a guy tells me that, or a woman tells me that, I'll, I'll say, my dear friend, would you please tell me what the Ten Commandments are? Huh? I can't hardly, I can't find anybody who can tell me what four of them are, let alone ten. And yet they say, well, you got to keep the commandments. Well, what are they? Well, let's see here. You, you shouldn't steal. Okay, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't commit adultery. And uh, let's see here. Mm, uh, the, the, I can't. I guess. I can't thank you. And the next one, I, well, you got you got six more to go. And yet you're going to be saved by keeping these things? Come on, folks. I had a guy tell me that two or three weeks ago. He was saying, well, I don't know. I know I don't go to church as often as I ought to because, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I just don't make it a priority. I said, whoop, whoop, whoop. There's one of the problems right there. It ain't a priority to you because your heart ain't right. Oh, people don't want to hear that. People don't want to be told that. He said, well, I was brought up in a church. Went to Sunday school as a young boy. My mama took me every Sunday. Boy, every Wednesday night we went to prayer meeting and all this. Oh, but it ain't a priority now. Oh, but he's going to heaven because he keeps the commandments, and yet he can't even name four of them. We, we got a real 
that's just one out of a multitude of folks I talk to. And you start talking about spiritual things and heaven and hell, and I ain't met anybody that's really told me they're going to hell. Well, I've had people say it in, in humor. Well, I won't be there alone. I'll be down there burning with the rest of them. <laughs> that ain't funny. That ain't funny at all. Because hell is a real place. Because the Bible says God prepared for the devil and his angels and for all those that believe not in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, you mean to tell me that God has chosen the people to believe in Christ? And what about those that don't believe? They're destined for hell. Is God determined that to be? Yes, he certainly has. He certainly has. Can God do that? Can God do anything he wants to do? Absolutely he can. Let me tell you something. One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. Now, now the Ten Commandments are the Ten Moral Commandments that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with that God personally gave him that were etched in stone to give to the children of Israel. That was the moral code, the Ten Commandments, especially to live by. There were about 350 commandments altogether. There were dietary commandments, civil commandments, there's commandments and statutes and testimonies and, and, and things that God had given the children of Israel to live by, even to what the priest was to dress and, and how they were to, what garment they were to wear, how to build the temple, how to build the tabernacle, the holy of holies and the mercy seat. All these things God given God's children uh, down through the time. But the Ten Commandments were the Ten Moral Commandments they were to live by. And let me tell you something, not one man upon the face of the earth has ever lived by all ten of us throughout his lifetime. I don't care how hard you try, you're going to fail in one of them. And James says in his writing, he says, if you fail to keep one of the commandments, you are guilty of all of them. Whoa! Let me tell you something, that's serious. If you have failed to keep one commandment, you are guilty of all of them. What God has done is give the children of Israel the Ten Commandments as a holy and perfect guideline of which he demands, knowing that man can't live by them, and what the law and the commandments does is reveal to us our sin. It reveals to us our inability. It reveals to us that we are failures. We are needy people. We are poor. We are destitute of righteousness. And the Bible says, the Isaiah 10, he says, For our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And there is none righteous, Paul said in the third chapter of Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have gone astray. And there's none that seeketh after God by nature because of the depravity of their heart and mind through the disobedience of Adam and Eve that have been brought a curse upon all of mankind. And all for the precious promise of God. I'm going to send you a Savior. I'm going to send the Redeemer down and in the fullness of time, he's going to be revealed. And oh, praise God, that Holy Ghost came upon that virgin Mary, that one chosen of God, that, that little maiden, 
that had never known a man, the Bible says. She had never known a man in any sexual way, and yet she became pregnant by the power of the Holy Ghost of God and begot the God-man Jesus Christ to be born in this time world. Yes, God took upon flesh. He took upon a human body just like mine and yours. And that just because, like the Bible says, Paul wrote, he says in there, that we have a Lord that, that knows what it's like to suffer in his body. He has been touched with the infirmities, even as we have them in this time world. He has felt that the sorrow uh, that the heart feels when someone is sorrowing and in grief. You say, well, wait, wait, when was that? How about in the Garden of Gethsemane? just before he was to go to the cross. And he knew what was before him. He knew, he said, this is why I've come. I've come that I might die. I've come that I might have to leave. The disciples said, what do you mean, the master? Where are you going? I, I can't tell you that at this time, but you will shortly see that I'm going to depart from here. And he said, if I depart from here, I'm going to send you a comforter. Oh, praise God for that Holy Spirit that is the comforter that Jesus promised. Oh, is that promise? He promised a comforter was going to come and dwell all of his people, that they would be witnesses of his love, grace, and power, and mercy throughout the ends of time until he come again. And that promise has been maintained. That's why there's just a few folks here today. That's why I'm here today, because... God has had mercy on me and transformed my heart and caused me. I put explanation marks around the word caused me to believe on Jesus Christ. If God hasn't caused you to believe on Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation and deliver from sin, uh, then you will never come and you'll never be able to believe. If he hasn't caused for the Bible says, not, not only all that the Father has given him shall come to him, but that all those that do come that the Father has given him, he shall in no wise lose none. I mean, all that come to Christ by, by simple faith. And I say simple faith because it ain't faith that we have done. Listen to this verse, found in Romans chapter 3. For by grace are ye saved through faith in that not of yourselves, for it is by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is unmerited favor, and faith is that substance that causes us to believe on Christ and what he's done in your behalf, personally, individually. You see, faith, the Bible says in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verse 1, is defined as this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. God promised. He promised those that he wrote to in the Hebrew uh, epistle. He says, he says, God is going to cause you to have faith. That is going to be substance. And that's going to be evidence that you are Christ because you're going to be caused to believe upon him of whom I have sent to redeem a people for his name's sake. 
Salvation's of the Lord. It's as simple as that. The Bible says in the, the prophet Isaiah penned, and he says, For my people shall be willing in the day of my power. Willing to do what? To come to me. To believe upon me. To trust in me. To, to believe that my promises are sure and steadfast. <clears throat> Let me read to you from the sixth chapter of Hebrews. The Bible says, let me start up here, verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 6, but when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing, I will bless thee and multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham obtained the promise. God said, I'm going to bless you. You're going to, you're going to obtain a promise uh, that I am promising you, that you are going to be uh, one that is going to multiply uh, down through time those that will be my people. And you know, you, if you recall in the gospel where the Jews, they, they said to Jesus, well, uh, how can you know about Abraham? For you ain't yet 50 years old, and you're talking about Abraham? And what Jesus said, he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's what he said. God told Moses, when Moses said to God Almighty, when he told him to go down to rescue the children of Israel and get them delivered out of the hand of Pharaoh, Moses said, well, who am I to tell them to send me? And God Almighty says, you tell him that I am that I am has sent you. And Jesus said, I am he. Jesus said that uh, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, it just makes the Jews upset. They wanted to stone him, kill him right there. The Bible says they were fixing to throw him over a cliff and he departed from their presence. He just, he removed himself from their presence. They, they couldn't grab him, they couldn't restrain him, they wasn't going to kill him because uh, his time wasn't yet. But when his time was to come, by the wicked and cruel hands of Roman soldiers and the Jews, they took Jesus Christ, according to Acts chapter 2, by the determinate counsel of God, they took the God-man Jesus, and nailed him to the cross because he had to suffer and die in our room instead to redeem us from the curse of sin. And he did so by his blood and his broken body upon the cross of Calvary. Upon his body was nailed the commandments of God, and he suffered fulfilling all righteousness in our behalf. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For God has made him, Jesus, to become sin for us, that we, his belief, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, brothers and sisters, that is a blessed thought, that God Almighty caused Jesus Christ to become sin. He became the sin-bearer for all of God's children throughout the ages of time. 
that are caused to believe upon him uh, by faith. And that is that gift of God, not of works, not of man's decision, not of man's free will, but of the will of God. And so, therefore, the promises of God, I said, are in, uh, they're innumerable, immutable, steadfast, unmovable, unchangeable. The Bible says, it says in verse 16, the sixth chapter of Hebrews, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. It's talking about... Uh, about Abraham being blessed with the promise of God. In verse 17, it says, Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability. Remember I said that his promises are immutable? That means the unchangeability, his immutability of his counsel, and he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation or strong comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, and which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into within the veil. Oh, he, Jesus Christ, had entered it within the veil. Now, what veil is he referring to here? He's referring to these Hebrew believers about the veil that covered the front of the Holy of Holies. When Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, if you recall that that day turned dark, and it says the veil of the, in the temple was rent from top to bottom, that means that that veil that was only accessible by the Levitical priests that takes the blood of animals to offer them a sacrifice for the sins of God's people, Israel, was only allowed to enter in through that Holy of Holies. But that veil was ripped. It was torn from top to bottom when Jesus Christ was crucified that very day, meaning that that ripped veil gives access to everyone that believes upon Christ from that time forward, that they have access to God through Jesus Christ, not through a family priest. The priesthood of the Levitical tribe ceased to be uh, in God's good pleasure at that particular time, for Christ became our high priest. And the Bible says that he has ascended into heavenly glory and to see that the right hand of the Father making intercession for us continually. Continually. Perpetually. Without ceasing. Christ is making intercession for us. That means when we fail to do that which is right, we sin. We, we sin every day in some way or another. Either by sin of omission or a sin of uh, uh, just uh, willingly, premeditatedly, or we, we sin uh, even uh, from uh, negligence to worship as we ought the Lord God Almighty. We fall short of God's glory. But because of Christ, we have been made righteous and continue to be made righteous. 
And that's why the God that comes to seek and save people, when it says save them, that's what it means. We are going to be uh, redeemed, saved, and uh, uh, heirs of grace, and heaven is our ultimate home. And when we lay down these mortal bodies in the graveyard, I got yonder. It's a matter of time when Christ is going to come and call them up. And all those that are in Christ that trusted him throughout the ages of time and the generations of times past shall be raised in the newness of life, taken on a new body, a glorified body, likened unto Christ's body. Shall be taken up in the clouds in the glory. I'll close with this. In Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens with a shout. Now, there ain't no secret rapture, folks. I know the churches have taught this, and they've taught this dispensationalism and teaching of, of a secret rapture, that God is going to come back, there's going to be a season happening, and all of a sudden people are going to be gone. Let me tell you something. When Jesus said that I'm coming back, and the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens with a shout. You think that that ain't going to be heard all over the world? Let me tell you something. It's going to be an awakening like you've never heard before. There's going to be a shout like you've never heard before. For the Lord himself shall come from the heavens with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trump of God. The trump of God has got to be the loudest blast that could ever be heard of mortal man. And the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens, and they which are dead in Christ shall be raised from the graves, and we which are alive and remain at that time shall be raised with them that are brought up out of the graves, uh, that will be transformed into an incorruptible body, and we shall both together be ascending up into glory and be received by him up into heaven. Oh, praise God. Amen. He's right. He's worthy of praise. That's why we've come here today to sing about it. To sing about the cross, his body, his blood. To sing about his redeeming power. He told, if you recall, he told uh, Pilate, who was brought in as the governor of the government there, of the Romans to judge Christ. He said, I find no fault in this man. He said, I find no fault. He went over and he washed his hands. And that was a gesture that in his judicial abilities to judge a man right or condemn him or judge him wrong or whatever, he washed his hands of the situation. He said, I find no fault in him. He said, I'm washing my hands in this business. He says, what is it that you folks you want? And they yelled out, crucify him. And Barabbas, the thief that was also there to be judged, who they knew was a thief and was a scoundrel, they said, let him go to crucify that one called Jesus because he was a threat, you see, to the Jewish religion. And they hated him. But he also had to do it for our sake. And Jesus said, what sayest thou? And Jesus said, he said, for, for 
you do not have power over me, for I give myself to you, that I might be raised again. You don't have power over me, Pilate, and neither do these people, but I have to give myself as a sacrifice to be nailed to that cross and to be put upon that cross and suffer and die in behalf of my people. So Christ offered himself up. People think, oh, well, that was such a cruel, wicked thing that men did. Yes, it was, but it was in God's determined, sovereign purpose that it had to occur. For if Christ had not been taken and sacrificed on the cross and paid that price for our sin, we would yet be in our sin and without hope. For as the Bible says in the in the writer of uh, uh, Paul writes in uh, Second Corinthians that. Uh, I preached on it up at Brother Mike's church a couple weeks ago about if Christ be not risen from the dead, then we are yet in our sins. And so therefore, if Christ has not died and then been risen again, then we're yet in our sins. We have no hope. Let me tell you something, folks. All the other religions of the world, they have a dead prophet or a dead God. Buddha is somewhere in in a grave. Mohammed is died and never came back again uh, to life. Jesus died to death and was raised the third day and was seen of more than 500 brethren 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended up into heaven. That's proof enough for me of what Jesus promises. He's going to keep. And his promise is he's coming back for a church. And that church is made up of those who are been called to believe upon him and trust in his blood and his broken body in their behalf as poor and needy sinners. And I hope that that's where your trust is in today. And then the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ in behalf of your sinful state. For without Christ, there is no salvation. Without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, there is no heaven for man. For those that are found without Jesus Christ in that last great judgment day shall be told to depart from me. You work in the iniquity, I know you're not. What a dreadful thing to hear to be said, depart from me. You work as a iniquity, I know you're not. Enter into the devil's hell. Uh, where there is eternal fire and brimstone and burden forever, where the smoke of their torment raises up forever. What a terrible place. Let me tell you something. Christ is all in all. And it's all by grace that we're called to believe in. That's, that's the gospel. It's the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of God. And it's by grace, unmerited faith that he sought to seek and save the people for his name's sake. Glory to his precious name. And may he ever be worshipped without end, as he shall be, even in heaven's glory, shall the anthems of the singing of the saints of God and be echoed throughout eternity. Oh, how precious is 
that glorious land, all oh, that died on Calvary's tree for one like me. Oh, it shall be the song of the Church of Christ in heaven's glory one day. Would you pray with me? Father, in the blessed and righteous name of our Son Jesus, we thank you for this privilege we've had to take a little look at the book. Yes, we are trusting in these, Lord, to apply it to our hearts and our minds. Cause us, Lord, to be revealed the truth of the matter. That Jesus Christ is our only hope and help. And Father, we pray that you will be with the sick and afflicted. That you will undergird the sorrowing and suffering saints. That you'll be with those, Lord, who have lost loved ones of late. That you'll be with those, Lord, who are laying in the hospitals now that we know uh, maybe tempted and, and uh, friends, neighbors around about. And we know that our mortal realm that is going to come to an end here uh, one day soon. So each day it goes by, we're closer to the grave. But, oh, God, thank you for Jesus, who has caused us to have that hope beyond the grave. And heaven is our ultimate home for eternity and forevermore. So to thee be the glory and praise and honor is my humble prayer. Amen. Amen. of the Old School Primitive Baptist. This is Elder D. Martin Sr. Stay tuned for another gospel message of God's free and sovereign grace. As I was driving up here, two-hour trip up here to be with you all, and I was thinking about uh, of all the books that have been written to men, all of the devices that have been invented to men, I don't care whether it's medical science, MRI machines, or whether it's tractors and farm equipment, agriculture, or whether it's space exploration devices and shuttles and so forth, but in all the things that men have uh, invented, and of all the books that have ever been compiled, written by man in this time realm uh, of history, especially. Let's just focus on that a minute. I know that uh, Brother Mike has been a uh, historical studier of the Civil War times and early uh, American history and so forth. But, you know, of all the books of history, all the books of churches, we have in, in this book here compiled in the Bible, and these uh, books of the scriptures we have, uh, we have the histories of the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. 
But in all the books that have ever been written by men of history, and how important it seems to be to some people more than others, and how that they really, they just focus their whole mind on, on history and, and how things come about and how things went and, and of course, uh, uh, how things have uh, changed. But I was thinking about that in time to come, in the day of the Lord, not one book written of men not one device made of man shall mean nothing. For all things in this world as we know them, in the material aspect and in, in the books and in the, the records of, of the record that men have kept throughout the ages of time, shall be eliminated from existence. You ever thought about that? I never really focused and thought about that much until I drove up here this morning. I was thinking that all the things about some, for instance, the, the old Baptist. We, I know some brethren that just, uh, their life is just ate up with uh, focusing in on the beginnings and the, the uh, historical aspects and the traditions and all the things of the old Baptists and where they when they evolved and where they come from, where they branched off from, and, and uh, who were some of the founding fathers and so forth. And, that, and that's, that's nice to know to some degree, but, uh, but for really, uh, once you know it, what good is it? Huh? Well, what good is it? It's just like this time world that we know right now. What good is it going to be when the Lord Jesus comes back? What good is it going to be with all of the books, history, recordings, all the inventions of men, all the, the devices and things that we have and, of course, we enjoy and we've been blessed to have? Uh, we're seeing uh, to begin to road away from the, what we experienced 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, Brother McLeod, uh, Cloud, rather, I call you McLeod, I know McLeod. Brother Cloud, and uh, Daniel, uh, uh, John, uh, Brother Michael, all of you brothers and sisters here, Brother Tim, uh, we have seen the best of the best in the American lifestyle. We have been to schools as young children where school meant something and teachers were serious about what they were doing. And we have we have seen morality uh, where it meant something and integrity meant something to people, uh, but not anymore. Morality don't mean anything. Uh, if you want to live with someone, go ahead. Uh, it's nice, man. There ain't no commitment. You just take your suitcase and you go in and sit down and, and uh, she welcomes you with open arms with a couple children and needs a little money, too. And you got a place to sleep and some food to eat, somebody to fix it for you. And if it don't work for you, you just take your suitcase and you just head on out the door. So it just don't work for me. Uh, this ain't going to work. That's the way the life is today. It's that way everywhere. It, and I see it happening time again. 
where one a guy moves in and he lives with some some gal with a kid, a child or two, and uh, next thing you know, uh, his car is gone, his truck's gone, and I wonder what happened. He gets sick, he died, what happened? Oh no, he just got tired of living there, and moved on. Next thing you know, or a month or two later, there's another car there. I mean, I mean, I see these things. I'm living in a retirement area uh, on a lake community, just of old folks. But the young folks that are around, I mean, you can see things that are happening. But, I mean, uh, we've seen the best of the best in the years past and seen that how it slowly eroded away as a rushing flood of water runs down a, a hillside and erodes the soil into the, the tributary of the river and down the stream it goes. We've seen morality go away. And it'll be eliminated. You talk about the killing the children. This is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. How do you comfort 20, 20 parents of 20 children, six through 10 years old, that have been shot more than uh, some 11 times by a killer? How do you comfort them? The only thing you can say is how sorry you are. But Christ is the only one that can ever give any peace in a situation like that. He is the great comforter. And he sent it to us, which are blessed to believe. And to every one of those parents that are blessed to believe, I believe that comforter shall be granted them as well. But to those that don't have a comfort nor a hope, well, what do they have? They have heartache, heartbreak, tears, and anguish. And let me tell you something. Some of those mothers and some of those children, they'll never be the same. They'll never get over it. I knew a fellow I worked with in the trades years ago, and uh, he was a superintendent, and his, uh, his uh, son, only son, went to Vietnam and was killed. And they've come and they they knocked on the door and went and visited the home and said that we're sorry to tell you, Miss So and So, Mister So and So, that uh, your son is deceased in the service in Vietnam. And uh, uh, she she emotionally totally fell apart. And from that point on, that day on. She had been the psychologist, psychiatrist, taking different medications, tranquilizers. She's taken antidepressants, all that. She's never been the same. She hardly spoke. She became a sort of a recluse. She never got over the death of that son, Brother Mike. That's how the the death of the emotional trauma of something like that can touch some people, and whereas others they can. They, they can seem to have the strength and inward ability to, uh, to deal with it and, and to be able to uh, be consoled with it, uh, whether they be uh, Christian or not. I mean, non-Christians, uh, they can deal with death and suffering. I've seen it. You've seen it. They do it in the service. They do it in war. But in regarding... How everything that we know in this time world and have learned in this time world, apart from the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, is going to be meaningless 
And I'm going to take by this scripture, did God permit, and I'm going to prove it to you. Now, if you'll turn with me, if you have a Bible, and turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. This chapter here is going to give us a clear picture of what's going to happen to everything in this world when the day of the Lord occurs. I don't care whether it's a motorcycle or uh, a uh, freight train or a jet plane, when this day occurs, nothing will mean anything except Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I'm going to read chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, Paul writes, excuse me, Peter's writing here. Peter writes this second epistle, and it primarily starts off about the coming things uh, to occur. Uh, These are a revelation that Peter had been given by the Spirit of God and, and the teachings of Jesus Christ in his public ministry. And Peter, writing here in the second epistle, he says, Beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I may stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. I hope you have a pure mind this morning. What do I mean by pure mind? In other words, a mind that is a mind that thinks upon godly things, virtuous things, things that are true, honest. Okay? He says that that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and uh, the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. We've got scoffers everywhere. Scoffers that are criticizing Christianity, criticizing Christ, criticizing, I mean, this, this uh, uh, Christmas season, uh, of course, is uh, uh, really a time where a lot of them are focusing in on it and uh, the, they're scoffing Christianity. I mean, uh, I'm not a Christmas person. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to get into all the historical background of it, but uh, I'm not a Christ Mass celebrator. It's Christ Mass. It's a Catholic-originated uh, holy day that uh, had come about that has been adopted into this nation and has become a tradition. That's what it is. And, uh, you know... You take that little baby Jesus Christ in these nativity scenes and take him out of the picture, and nobody's interested in it. But you put a little baby back in there, and oh, isn't that, isn't that sentiment wonderful? Isn't that sweet? But you know something? It, it's, it's scoffers. People who are said, and as they said in Peter's day, they said in verse 4, Where is the promise? Of his coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 
For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, I want to stop right there just a minute and say, say a couple of things. Well, I better not because in the next couple of verses it's going to be the key text, and then I'll back up and I'll explain to you something. It says, but the heavens and earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 7. Verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant to this one thing. In other words, don't be ignorant, but listen up and uh, hopefully gain some knowledge about this situation in which Peter is speaking about. He says, listen up. He says, listen about. He says, there's one thing uh, that you need to be listening to, and that is that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. I'm going to stop right there. Just a minute. There's a, I believe there's a, uh, a comma right there. It says that he is long-suffering towards usward. Now, as far as I know, there is two places in the New Testament that the word usward is used. It's used here and in Ephesians 1.19. And both places it's referring to those to whom the author of the epistle is uh, writing to, Paul in Ephesians, Peter here in Peter, it is writing to the brethren in Christ Jesus of whom it is addressed to at the first chapter. It's not writing to the world. It's not writing to everybody in general, but to us word, us word. We that believe on the person of Jesus Christ. We that have been called by grace into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It says that God is long-suffering to usward, listen now, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, how many times have you heard a preacher preached and saying, well, God is not willing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance, trying to get people to make a decision and to come and believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. I have heard it over and over again over my 38 years of being among Christian people and reading from this book and hearing preachers say that. Oh, because I will any should perish. Now, uh, okay, here's your opportunity. He's given you the opportunity. Now it's up to you. Let me tell you something. This Bible says in here, but it is God is long-suffering to us, word not willing that any of us, us who believe, who've been blessed by free and sovereign grace to believe upon the person of Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and Master, and Redeemer, we are blessed by God, and he's long-suffering towards us, word, that none of us is going to perish, but that all of us is going to come to repentance. 
And I have never met a born-again believer yet that has never come to repentance. They've all come to repentance. Because repentance is an evidence of salvation. It is a work of grace. It's by godly sorrow a man is brought to repentance. And that godly sorrow is brought about by the spirits of the living God. And so when you hear that proclaim, God's not willing, any should perish, but all should come to repentance, he's talking about those particular in this text, the brethren in Christ Jesus. Now, let me go on and get to where we're talking about in the last day, in the day of the Lord, when I said nothing's going to mean anything books and knowledge and all that we've gathered in our minds and, and in our uh, thinking and in our studies over the period of a lifetime is going to be meaning, meaningless. Listen to what it says here. It says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. That means unexpected. The thieves come out at night. At least most of them. They're getting brazen now where they go out in the daytime. They just put on masks and they take a gun and go into a convenience store. They're robbing places right in the midday. I mean, Orlando is a daily thing. I get my news out of Orlando. It's a daily thing, at least. If there's not one or two or more in daytime robberies, uh, it's unusual. But anyway, the Bible says that... that uh, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. In other words, kind of an unexpected time. But in which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. There's going to be a great noise. I think very possibly there may be that trump of God that Paul talked about in Thessalonians 4. And the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens. Uh, and uh, he's going to have the voice of an archangel, the trump of God. And he's going to come with a shout. And it's going to be heard, I think, by, by the whole world. And as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall it be on the coming of the Son of Man. I don't believe in no secret rapture business. I believe in a, in a visible scene by the world coming of Jesus Christ, and it is going to be a day that uh, it will be like none other. And the Bible says, looking and hasting, uh, until the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, listen now, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Verse 11, I, I skipped over that one. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought she to be in all holy conversation and godliness? All these things that we know right now are going to be dissolved with a fervent heat. Because the Bible says that all things are going to be dissolved and the elements shall be melted with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Everything in this time world is going to be, as an element, uh, totally uh, extinguished and uh, burnt up and eliminated uh, in a fervent heat. And so I ask you, what, what, what's it all mean? It only means 
that it is usable for just a short season in our lifetime. And no matter what men write about, as far as history goes, when we have gained the knowledge of that history in our studies because of our interest in it, and our bodies are laid down in death, the history goes with it that we had in our minds. It's like a man that was brought up as an apprentice carpenter and was taught the trade. And over a period of four or five years or so forth, they worked up, become a journeyman, and then uh, he goes on and becomes uh, uh, in more of a superintendent position and so forth. But all that he had learned in coming along as a tradesman uh, in the trade uh, when he dies and goes to the graveyard, he takes all that he's learned with him. And, and uh, that, that was one thing that I thought was good about uh, some of the uh, the apprenticeship programs. It was it, it took young people and taught them trades from older men who had come up through the hard ways and uh, taught them how to do things. They didn't have to learn it. In other words, each generation didn't have to learn it over and over brand new again, Brother Michael. You didn't have to, you didn't have to teach the next generation how to take and use a miter box because he was taught it uh, from the preceding guy that was in the trade. But in the day of the Lord, all of these things are going to be meaningless and they will all be taken and, and will be obliviated from our minds. And, and will be obliviated from the, the, the earth as we know it. All things shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervor heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be, what? Burned up. All burned up. Oh, oh you mean that, that book that I've been keeping that is such a treasure to me? Oh, 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 how about my diary? As, uh, some of you ladies may have been keeping a diary all your life. What good will it be in that day of the Lord when all things will burn up? Oh, I've kept all these all these treasures and tools in, in my workshop, and, and i got to... You know, welding machines and drill presses, and, and I can do all these things. And what is that going to be in the day of the Lord, brother? They're going to melt like a, in the fervency of the heat of God's almighty judgment and will mean nothing. Oh, it says, and nevertheless, verse 13, we, according to his promise, who cannot lie, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. What manner of people ought we to be? People who are seeking to walk by the power and might of Jesus Christ in us, causing us that we might walk in such a way that we would be found with peace in heart, without spot and blameless before him. And in verse 15, 
and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, Peter respected Paul and all of his epistles that he wrote because he knew that it was the truth. He knew that it was spirit-given revelation that the Apostle Paul wrote the epistles, as well as Peter and the authors of this book, as the old men of old were given understanding the revelation and penned these words by the unction of the Holy Spirit of God Almighty. And the Bible says, yes, these things that Paul had wrote and had written unto you, verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which ye are, in which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. In other words, they wrestle with it because they don't understand it. The natural man never will understand it. For the natural man yet discerneth not the things of the Spirit, neither can he know them. That's what Paul wrote into the Corinthian church. The Bible goes on to say, oh, they'll rest with these things. And then as they do also uh, the other scriptures into their own destruction. Oh, yes, those scoffers, uh, they rest with these things because they don't have uh, a, a spiritual mind. They haven't been made uh, born of the Spirit. They don't have the mind of Christ within them to understand the truth of the matter. And the Bible says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. There's a warning there. That what you have learned, be careful that what you have learned that God has shown you that you fall not from the truth of the matter. But he goes on to say, in conclusion, verse 18, the last verse of the chapter, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Don't be ignorant in these things that are set before you, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you do that? There's only one way that that's accomplished, and that is that God, by grace, says grow in the knowledge of grace. Grow in the, in the grace or the unmerited favor of Christ. In other words, what it's saying here to grow in the in the grace of God is to is to proceed to increase your understanding of his favor towards his people and his sovereign mercy on his elect church of whom he has called and chosen before the foundation of the earth. And Grow not only in grace, but in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Savior, in the knowledge of him. Grow in the favor of him and the knowledge of him. 
Now, I talk now, what is the knowledge referring to? I believe that the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is his character. Is his character. Is his, uh, like I said earlier, his, his uh, omnipotence, omniscience, his um, um, uh, omnipresence, his almighty character. Uh, that uh, as you grow in the knowledge of his character, uh, by the grace of God and through the spirit of revelation, uh, we have such a wonderful peace and comfort. As Paul said, peace has understanding. And by growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, you have a joy unspeakable, a joy that comes about that you don't know how to express it. Because he and he alone is the one that has called us from a life of sin. He's the one and one alone that has sought us in a time when we were in despair of sin and depravity. The Bible says that we have been sought of God and brought by a way which we knew not. We did not know the way, neither could we have found out the way, unless God, by his spirit and sovereign mercy, had shown us the way, set us on that path, as Pilgrim was set, as he was taking that book, had taken that book that he had acquired, and he held to it, and he he wandered around there at the home, home place. He wandered around the community there. Oh, oh, he didn't know what to do with it and what he read in there. He, he didn't know how to deal with it and what was going on in his heart. As, as you know and as you've been taught, that his wife thought he was a, a man losing his mind. His children thought that he was beside himself community began to look down upon him, thinking this man had just gone beside himself in this religious deal. Oh, no. What he found in this book, oh, it was a treasure, a treasure that shall never be lost. All things, uh, this world shall pass away with that fervent heat in that day of the Lord. But this thing that the pilgrim found shall never be lost, Brother Tim, because it's uh, salvation, it's forgiveness, it's redemption. It is, uh, it is that wonderful work of God's grace brought about by his sovereign mercy to undeserving sinners, seeking them and saving them by his grace and favor. Oh, yes, the appointed heirs of God that have chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began, they shall never lose that experience, for it is life eternal we have acquired in Christ, that we have within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, is life eternal. We have eternal life within us. That's what causes us to keep on keeping on. That's what causes hope to be a continual reality. That's what causes it to be that substance of things hopeful. Let me tell you, man, when I talk about substance, I'm talking about something I can grab on to. You know, it a substance is something that that it's not a pie in the sky. It's not a mirage in the desert. 
a substance of things hoped for uh, is what uh, is the definition of faith, and faith and hope are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You got faith, you got hope, you got hope, you got faith. And the things that we have in Christ Jesus is all by sovereign free grace. I close with these few comments. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. The gospel being preached, not being mixed with faith, is to no profit to the hearers. If I stood here before you these past few minutes, spoke to you about Jesus Christ, and about the day of the Lord and his coming, that the elements of this earth shall be burned up with a fervent heat, and that salvation is by none other but then by him and his precious blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. And a person has not got ears to hear that, then uh, without faith being mixed with the word as it is preached of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is up to no effect at all. And they that be of God, hear of God's word. And they that be not of God, hear not the words of God. And neither can they know them. But they that be of God will hear the words of God. And it will be a blessing to their heart and their soul. And it shall ever change their understanding of their self and of God. Of their self as being an unworthy sinner. Of God is the only means of salvation and redemption and a hope of eternal glory. To him be the praise and glory forever is my prayer. I thank you for your kind attention, your loving prayers in days past. I thank God that I'm able to be here today. I praise him for his mercy towards an undeserving sinner such as I. May God be with you and bless you. shall not want. He 
he was making reference to Lord Jesus Christ, only he did not see the total revelation of Christ as he is manifested to us in the New Testament. But he did know that the Lord God Almighty, who had called him, had blessed him, of whom he had a heart for, was his shepherd and the one that was going to lead him and guide and direct him throughout the pilgrimage of his life. So we find here we're going to talk about Jesus Christ as this good shepherd. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and it begins by saying this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus is speaking, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him. And they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of a stranger. Now let me stop right there just a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ is expressing here that he is the good shepherd, and that the good shepherd, he knows his sheep, and number two, he's known of his sheep, and they know his voice, and they'll follow him when he speaks to them and says to them to come. They will not follow another who is a stranger, because the Bible says, and a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. In other words, the elect of God, the heirs of grace, the children of God Almighty, chosen in Christ Jesus to be the heirs of grace, to be the Christian children that God has determined to be his church in this time world. They know the voice of that good shepherd of which Jesus Christ has become. They know his voice and his voice alone. They're not going to follow some false religion, some false prophet. They're not going to follow some hiring shepherd. Now, a hiring shepherd is one that is hired by somebody and paid money to take care of sheep. Jesus is not a hired shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, which is not hired, but he has been given uh, by God Almighty the divine authority to care for his sheep, love them, take care of their needs, see that they are fed spiritual food, See that they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they will exalt him and worship only him and not another. Well, the Bible goes on to say, For this parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they, which he spoke to them. 
And then said Jesus unto them again, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now what he told them before, they just they, they just couldn't perceive it. They didn't understand really what he was trying to convey. And, and that was the way it was with a number of things that Jesus spoke to his disciples about in parables. A parable is a, a story type of uh, uh, illustration of a truth. And unless you're giving the uh, revelation of the understanding of what the parable is about, you're not really going to understand it. It's going to be kind of confusing. Much of what Jesus told his disciples was that way, because he said to the disciples, many of these things you'll not understand now. You'll not understand what I'm saying to you. But there will be a time when I leave here, that I'm going to send you another comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. And when that comforter comes, he shall lead you in all truth. In other words, there's a time coming when those things that you don't really understand totally now, uh, you're going to be revealed those things in time, which we know the Bible uh, made it manifest in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came upon those and... Uh, uh, because they become witnesses of the grace and the gospel of Christ, and all a lot of these things that they struggled with understanding was opened up into their understanding, and they saw really what Jesus was referring to in regarding when he said, I must go away. Many times, if you recall, he said, oh, but Lord, the Master, where dost thou goest? He says, where I go, you cannot come now. But there, I've got to depart shortly. Oh, where are you going to go? He says, I've got to go a place to where you won't perceive as of now, but you will. The Bible goes on to say, he says, I am the door of the sheep, and all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He's saying that there was many that came that said that they had a way uh, and a means to God. There were many false prophets. There were many, uh, even among the Jews, that said that the, they had the understanding of the truth of the matter. But Jesus said, no, there was many that came and said they had the way and knew the door, but he said they didn't know it. They were just thieves and robbers. They were just after... Uh, trying to gain the influence of men. They wanted the praise of people more than the praise of God. That, that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that was the scribes and, and, and all the other religious uh, group of uh, Judaism, of the Old Covenant, Old Testament. But Jesus goes on to say, he says in verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, in this building here, I'm going to give you a little parable or an analogy. This building we're looking at here has three doors. Actually, there's four. There's two there. But we're going to say that that is an opening in the wall as one door. 
We've got these three door openings here in this building. Okay, there's door A, there's door B, there's door C. There were many doors in the religious aspect among Judaism that the prophets and the scribes and Pharisees said that uh, was the way uh, to truth and the way to God and, and the, the, the means to worship Jehovah God and so forth. But Jesus said they, they, they were not uh, true. They spoke things which were not the truth. They were nothing but thieves and robbers. But he says, I am the door. Now, there's only one door. He didn't say, I am one of the doors. Now, if he would have said that, that would give some, some supposition for another religious order to say, well, Jesus is a door, but he said he was one of the doors. In other words, uh, uh, Allah, the God of the Islam, is a door. Uh, Buddha, the God of the Eastern religion, is a door. Uh, Confucius, a God of, of uh, also uh, a, uh, China and Hindu uh, sections of the world, also could be a door uh, if Jesus would have said for I am one of the doors no he said I am the door the door plural not, I mean not plural singular Jesus said I am the door and if any man enter in he shall be saved you cannot be saved. You cannot find salvation, deliverance. You can't find help and hope in any other means or method, place besides through Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. John chapter 10 is talking about the good shepherd. He's the only good shepherd, the same one David talked about in his 23rd Psalm, the same one he talked about throughout all the Psalms when he talked about uh, the Lord Shepherd, the same one that Isaiah referred to when he talked about God has a uh, has a sheepfold that is not of this group. If you recall, in the, Jesus said to the disciples, He says, "I have got sheep that are not of this fold." In other words, there are sheep that are of the Gentiles, and they're not Jews. There are elect Jews that God has chosen out of all of mankind, because he says, out of every tongue, kindred, and nation, I have got a people that I have chosen for my name's sake that shall be manifested in time. So he said, I've got a people that's not of this sheepfold, but that are of those that are outside Judaism. They are made up of Jew and Gentile, Greek and, and uh, barbarian and, and all the rest. And the Bible goes on to say that Jesus said, For a thief cometh not but for to steal. In other words, a thief comes for one reason. He comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. There was nothing 
that any religious order or sect of Judaism could offer any of them that could give them life and life abundantly. Jesus said, I have come to give life and to give life more abundantly than what you've ever seen or heard of in times past by any of the prophets of old. For the life that I give unto you is life eternal by the Spirit that comes to indwell and be with you and shall be in you, Jesus said. The Bible says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep, and that's exactly what he came to do. The good shepherd has come to give his life for the sheep. Now, uh, I think it goes on and tells down here about the hiring. Yeah, let me... I told you about a hireling was was a person uh, that was hired to be a shepherd, but he really didn't have a personal interest in the sheep. He was hired to take care of it, so he was doing it for pay. But listen, let, let me read what Jesus said. He says, I'm the good shepherd, and I am come to give my life for my sheep. But he that is a hireling is not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not. See it, and when he sees a wolf coming, he'll leave the sheep and flee. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. In other words, a hiring, if he's getting paid to watch over and care for some sheep, when it comes down to taking care of his own life and watching out for his best interest, and he sees a wolf coming, yeah, he ain't going to sit there and try to fight the wolf off. He's going to take off running and let the wolf take and get as many sheep as he wants. Because he's hired, and he don't really have a personal interest or care or compassion for the sheep, other than for the money he was getting paid. So it says the hireling, when he sees a, a wolf coming, he's going to take off. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling, and he careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Now that's a very interesting verse. Jesus don't only know his sheep but that he is known of his. In other words, he not only knows those of whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world to come and to seek and to save, but they that who he has been given to seek and save, they shall know him and they'll know his voice when he calls them. For the Bible says, No man cometh unto me except the Father giveth him them to me. And they know my voice, and they'll follow me. Last uh, last meeting time, I talked to you about the the calling of uh, Peter and Andrew and Matthew. If you recall, I said when Jesus went up and said to them, "Follow me," they didn't make up excuses or say, "Well, I, well, I got to do this or do that." Uh, they left exactly what they were doing, and they left and followed Christ. You know why? Because they knew He was the good shepherd and he had a divine voice that when he spoke it was with divine authority and they left what they were doing and they followed Jesus Christ. So it is with all of God's people. When God calls them by his spirit, they come. They don't make excuses up. They come and they follow Christ because they love the good shepherd. And the Bible goes on to say, in verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
This is the second time that he said this. He said it up here earlier when he said uh, that he is going to lay down his life for his sheep uh, in verse 11. I, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He says in verse 11. He says in verse 15. He says, even so, I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. So in two places there, in four verses, Jesus said, I am laying down my life for my sheep. I'm not laying my life down for the world. I'm not laying my life down to make opportunity for every person born of woman to have an opportunity to become one of my sheep. I am laying down my life for a designated flock of people God had ordained before the foundation of the world to come and have his son seek and save them. And that is who Jesus Christ came and he died for. For it says that in verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Remember I just told you a while ago that I said that he had sheep other than those of the fold of the of the Jews. There were some believing Jews, as we know, in the book of Acts, that when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 that were gathered together, those those Jews that had come up and gathered there, they were blessed by the Holy Spirit of God, and they were disciples and believers of Jesus Christ. But he had others outside of uh, Judaism, as I said, that are not of that original fold of Israel out of every tongue, kindred, and nation, as I said before. He said, them also I must bring. Jesus said, I must bring them. They're going to come. When Jesus calls a person, uh, as you have heard it preached so often, God has given you now the opportunity, and it's up to you. That is a lie of the devil and not a true thing of Scripture. Nowhere will you find where Jesus said, I've come to give opportunity for anybody and everybody to become one of my disciples and followers of me. Nowhere. You'll find where Jesus made it very particularly uh, and designated that he has a people that were given him of the Father which he said, all that the Father give me shall come to me, and I shall in no wise lose none. Now, there's no one coming to the Lord Jesus Christ except those that the Father has given Christ. That's just that's the bottom line. Now, I've heard preachers say this, and you've heard it probably most of your life, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make salvation available to the entire world. That is not true. If that's, the, if that's the truth, now listen to me. Just, just use a little bit of rational intellect. If Christ came and died on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood and his body was bruised and upon that cross for the entire world of mankind, then all of mankind automatically have been covered for by the blood and by the sacrifice of Christ. And heaven will be their ultimate eternal home. And in a matter of belief, if Christ has paid it all on the cross, 
for all of mankind, and his atonement covers the sins of all of mankind, all are going to heaven. Now, let's just face it. Now, there is some, uh, there is some up in the mountains of uh, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia that are called no-hellers. They don't believe in a literal hell, and they believe that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, that he did uh, pay the price for salvation for all mankind. Everybody's going to heaven. Now, there's folks that believe that. But what do you do with Scripture here? It says that, he says that uh, there's other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring. He didn't say that, that uh, uh, they're made up of uh, the entirety of the world. They're made up of individuals that, that God the Father has chosen by his sovereign, free grace alone. When I say sovereign, I mean uh, uh, total uh, uh, controller of all things. God is sovereign. God is sovereign controller of all things that come to pass in this time world. Every king, every ruler, every prince, every creature that crawleth, every cattle of the field, every cloud in the sky, every snowflake that has ever fallen has been so designated by God Almighty to occur and by no one else. And Satan himself is under the divine control and order of God Almighty. People get the idea that uh, Satan is uh, on an equal basis with God. I've heard preachers say, well, uh, you've got Satan that's warring against uh, uh, your spirituality. And if you feed Satan, then he's the one that's going to uh, be the one that controls your life. Let me tell you something. Satan don't control anything that God does not give him control of. Satan had went and he challenged God about Job. You remember Job? He said, here's this man, Job, a righteous man. This man is shewit. That word is shewit means he shuns and he hates evil. Here's a man, Job, that is shewit evil and is a righteous man. Oh, if you take these things from him that he has for possessions, oh, he will curse your name. And the Almighty said to Job, oh, he says, you think, he says, you go about your business and do your thing, but don't you touch his soul, and you'll see. And so when the Bible says Satan departed from the presence of the Almighty, he went down, and what happened? He took and he took and he took and annihilated every bit of the uh, possessions of Job. His cattle, his sheep, camels, his she-asses, his ten children, they all died. All was left was his wife. And his wife said to him in the final analysis after his crops were burned by the enemies, his children were taken and killed in a whirlwind that destroyed the house of which they were gathered together in in the festivity. All of his uh, animals and livestock were taken and uh, either killed or taken by uh, other enemies uh, that were uh, driven there by Satan's uh, fiery works of wickedness. 
And his wife says, Job, why do you continue to honor this God? Why don't you just curse him and die? And you know what Job said at that time? He said, though the Lord slay me, yet shall I trust him. Now that's grace that God had given him. No matter what come upon Job, God give, give him grace greater than the trial. Next, we find Satan going before the Almighty, and he says, okay. He says, you know, if you afflict his body or cause his body to be afflicted with pain and suffering, he will then curse your name. The Almighty says, you go and do your work, but you don't touch his soul. Satan departs from the Almighty on the second time. He goes down, and what's he do? He afflicts Job with boils from head to toe to where his skin, as it says, oozed uh, with the sores upon his body. In anguish did he sit at the gates of the city, and people looked at him in shame and scorn, and yet he did not uh, turn and curse the Lord God Almighty, but was given grace to endure it. And you know, the, the final result of Job's trials was that he was blessed a hundredfold over. He was given more children. He was given uh, tenfold the livestock. He was given greater wealth than he ever had before. And Satan, uh, you see, the whole, the whole picture, the whole uh, uh, analogy of, of that trial of Job was to prove God is almighty, all-powerful, and there is nothing so great that can come upon God's people that God Almighty will not give the grace for to cause us to endure it in the time of need. And if you ever get low and down and weary and troublesome, read the book of Job and see the end result. Though God Almighty caused all these things to occur and allowed Satan a, a reign uh, of, of sort to do what he said that uh, he, he wanted him to do, yet he can only go so far. And Satan can do nothing today than what God Almighty does not allow an authority uh, given to him to do. And people think that Satan just has a free rule. He don't have. Though he's called the prince and power of the air, Yes, he is the great influence of uh, this world around about us because of the depravity of our natures. We're prone to do that which is wicked and to follow the prince of darkness. But God, God's people, they're sheltered about. God's people are like the, the song that we sing so often. Uh, we are a garden walled around, chosen to be peculiar ground. Hey, sisters and brothers, we are walled around garden, a little garden prepared of God and nourished by Him. And we have a hedge about us that is called grace, the unmerited favor of God that continues to keep us in the fold, that we do not get outside the realm of what God has called us into. 
you recall where Jesus said in the Gospels, I believe in Matthew, might be mentioned also in Luke, where he said in there that he said that Jesus said that uh, this good shepherd had left the ninety and nine. He had a hundred sheep. He left the ninety and nine that were in good shape and they were pastoring. They go after that one lost sheep. That one little lost sheep that wandered out away from the flock that got over in a thicket, got caught down in there, and could not get out by himself to get back where he belonged. Jesus left the ninety and nine and went after the one lost sheep. That's exactly what he does to every one of us that are his chosen sheep in this time world throughout the generations of time. He leaves for uh, an instant, if you, if you can uh, imagine this, and he takes and goes after his chosen little lamb and takes them from the world of sin and woe and in a state of depravity and sin and brings them unto himself and causes them to be born of his spirit and become new creatures in Jesus Christ. And they become his little lamb and sheep and part of this fold. And that fold is going to be end up being the bride of which Jesus talked about. For I am the bridegroom and the church is my bride. And I'm preparing a bride that I'm coming back for. Jesus Christ is preparing a bride. And they're his sheep. He's the good shepherd and he's the bridegroom. Let me conclude. The Bible says, there's other sheep that I have which are not as fold, but they also shall hear my voice and they're going to follow me. <clears throat> there were those that were criticizing Jesus Christ and uh, they said to him, well, how can this be? Uh, and Jesus said to the Jews, that doubted what he said. He says, but you believe not because you're not of my sheep. People believe not today because they're not a sheep. Remember I said Jesus Christ came to die on the cross of Calvary and he shed his blood for a particular people. Those particular people are his sheep. Not the whole world. But his sheep made up of peoples out of this world but not the entirety of the human race are going to be under the blood of Christ. Only those chosen of the Father with which he has given Christ to come to be, die for on the cross are those going to be covered by the blood of Christ. His blood atonement is particular in its application. And that is very important. He says, you believe not because you're not my sheep. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That right there distinguishes those who are merely religious and those that are truly God's people. 
God's people are God's sheep given to Christ to come to seek and to save. And when he calls them, they come because they know his voice. And they'll not follow a marriage. They'll not follow a stranger because that voice does not ring true to their hearing. They only can hear and they will follow after the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he and he alone is the one that can seek and save sinners. He and he alone is that door by which we must enter into to experience forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. Have you entered into that door? Have you came in by, by that good shepherd? Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Do you rely upon his crucifix? His blood? And his body that was scorched, spit upon, and bled from a crown of thorns crammed down over his head? Is that what you rely on for the redemption of your soul and for life everlasting? I hope it is. Because if it's not, you're trying to enter into some other door. You're trying to you're trying to climb in over some other way. They're trying to come around the true door. You've got to enter in that door. Jesus Christ and him alone. Ascended up. 
up into the heavens, and then there was those angels, if you remember, standing there amongst those men of Galilee that stood there and saw him go up into the clouds in a resurrected body. And the angels of God said, Why do you men of Galilee stand here gazing upward? For this same Jesus, as you have seen him so like manner, ascend into the clouds into heaven, so shall come again the same Jesus. And Jesus said that if I go away, uh, I'm going to come again. And we're looking for him to come again, and the church has been looking for him to come again. And that's why that Paul said that in the Corinthians, he talking to the church at Corinth, he said, I know there's many scoffers out there. And say, well, where is this Jesus? Where is he? He's supposed to be coming again. Where is he? Uh, from the time of our fathers and from generations back, they've been saying that Jesus is coming again. But he hadn't, he hadn't showed up as of yet. Well, let me tell you something, friend. That don't change one iota of the Bible truth. Just because he hadn't come yet don't mean he ain't coming. Because what he promises, let me tell you something, he will do it. And he's coming back again. And I believe more right now, in 2012, we see more of the signs of the times of the return of Jesus Christ than in any other time. All you've got to do is look at East Asia, look at Israel, look at Gaza, look at the Islamic world and how they hate Israel and hate uh, Christians and anything that has to do with Israel. And they even want to take and uh, wipe them off of the face of the earth, Iran has said. Uh, this is getting to be uh, uh, it's a bloodbath over there. When a place that like Syria and Turkey and Egypt and Iraq and all them countries that are Muslims believe in Islam and in the Koran and yet kill their own selves, their own brethren that they call Brethren, there's factions over there, the Shiites, the Sunnis, and the Kurds, and they all claim to be Muslim brothers, but they don't agree on the Koran and what it says interpretation-wise. And they'll kill each other over their own personal interpretation. And one thing about somebody... Christian folk who believe the Bible or profess to, we ain't killing each other over disagreements, over doctrine. I mean, I mean, the, the missionary Baptist folks are out here trying to, to, to get the lost saved and bring them in the church house and trying to get lost folks to worship a holy God. I mean, I, I, ain't, got, I ain't angry with them. I ain't bitter. I don't hate them. If they believe in the scriptures as far as the, the Jesus Christ seeking to save sinners, and they are, have a hope in that redemptive work on the cross of Calvary, then they're my brother. And though we may not agree on something, I mean, I better love them. If uh, they be Christ, we have the obligation to love them, and I believe the Spirit of God in us will cause us to love them. And some folks will disagree and say, well, that's a false doctrine, and how could they really be true God's people if they're preaching a false doctrine? Well, who has arrived in their initial uh, experience of grace to all truth at one time? 
Uh, when you become a believer in Christ, did you know everything you know as you know it today? Of course not. None of us here are at the same level of spiritual maturity. No, just as if we're not here in the same level of mortal maturity. Uh, Brother Earl and, and, and folks that have been here for and have generations of past that have had folks here who, who's 80 years old or so. Brother, Brother Clyde, I'm 68. Are we at the same age uh, in maturity? Of course not. We're at different ages uh, mortally, and so are we spiritually. I have been shown some things in the Scriptures, I believe, that possibly some of you have not been revealed as yet in the Scriptures. I have found that when I read the Scriptures, that I'm revealed things that are new all the time. And it's inexhaustible. You cannot exhaust the Bible. And any man who thinks he knows it all, and regarding the end times and uh, the book of Revelation and has it all nailed down, uh, he is a deceiver. He, he don't. He cannot determine the things that are written in that book completely. Because some of it is literal, some of it is spiritual, some of it is the, the secrets of God which no man is to know. And the secret things belong only to God and not to mankind. And we only know what we know because God has been pleased to reveal it to us. And that's all there is to it. If you don't reveal it, you ain't going to know it. They that be of God, hear God's word. They that be not of God, hear not the words of God, and neither can they know them. Oh, there's many that hear Jesus said, but they don't perceive. There's a difference between hearing something and perceiving what it really means uh, into the heart and mind and soul. Many hear. How many have heard the gospel, radio, television, been to church most of their life, but never really heard it in the spirit of their heart and mind to where it transformed their lives and caused them to have Christ as a priority in their life and they want to walk after his way and his truth and be amongst his people and praise his name. Jesus said that if I go away, which I'm going to, he says, if I prepare a place for you, <laughs> he says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to come back again and receive you unto myself. And that where I am, there you may be also. What a wonderful blessing promise that is. He says, if I go again, I'm coming back, and where I am going to, you're going to be there with me. Now, that, brother, is what I'm looking for. It's when he comes back and takes me to where he's at. And we're going to be like him. Now, what is going to be like him like? Well, number one, it's going to have a resurrected body. It's going to have an incorruptible body changed in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says. When that glorious day comes and the trump of God sounds and the voice and the shout of God is manifested and the dead in Christ rise and are caught up to, uh, uh, from uh, the graves, and then we, which are alive as we are at that time, are going to be caught up with them in the clouds and to be carried up into heaven's glory. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And the Bible says the last part of that in the First Thessalonians 4 is comfort one another with these words. There's great comfort in the fact that Jesus is coming after his people. 
That's the only comfort I really have in this life. There ain't no comfort in this uh, in this life. Uh, I mean, uh, we're, we're, I mean, people say, well, I, I've lived a, a long life, and uh, I'm on Medicare, and I'm on Social Security, and I'm cruising along here. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, there ain't nothing in this world sure. There's nothing in here sure. You know, Social Security and Medicare are on the brink of falling apart. Now, I don't think it's going to touch us uh, that are probably uh, 55 and over, but I'll tell you what, to those uh, younger generations, it's going to be a whole different deal if the Lord tarries and uh, they're still around. But the Bible says that Jesus said that if I go, I'm going to come again and, and receive you into myself. And he says in verse 4, And whether I go, ye know the way, <coughs> uh, ye know, and the way ye know. And he says in verse 5, listen to what Thomas said. Now this was Thomas, the one who was uh, uh, absent when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, came out of the tomb on the third day, and then was uh, uh, in the upper room and manifested himself to the disciples at that time. Thomas at that time, if you recall, was absent. And then when Thomas was told about Jesus was seen, raised from the dead, and came amongst him and stood in the upper room when the doors were locked, and he came through the wall, through the door, and stood in their midst and scared them to death almost. That's, a, that's just a, a saying, scared to death. Almost. They didn't die. But they were scared. Because Jesus stood there in their midst, and he said, Peace be unto you. And uh, at that time, Thomas wasn't there. And that's why they call him Doubting Thomas. Because when they told Thomas about Jesus had come and stood in their midst and had, had talked with them uh, in the upper room, Thomas said, Oh, well, you, you guys must have seen some kind of a, uh, an image or, or a mirage or something. And then, you know, later on, it was a matter of a few days later, the Bible says Jesus appeared into them again, and Thomas was in their presence. And Thomas said, oh, oh, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, Thomas, uh, come and put your hands thither into to my palms or my hands and feel these, these holes. Come and feel my hand, and, and take your hand and thrust it into my side, Thomas, and feel the wounds that I've encountered here. And Thomas said, oh, my Lord and my God. Let me tell you something. Doubting Thomas didn't doubt no more after that experience, did he? But Thomas here, he says in verse 5, before Jesus Christ now was taken and crucified, and he was ministering to the disciples, Thomas here, he says to he says unto the Lord, he says, Lord, uh, we know that whither thou goest, and uh, how, how are we going to know that, and uh, how can we know the way? In other words, uh, he didn't understand fully what Jesus was saying about that he was going to go away, and, uh, and he didn't understand how the way was. And Jesus spoke to him, and probably one of the most uh, common scriptures in John 14 is this one right here, verse 6. And Jesus said unto him, I am the way. He says, I'm the way. Thomas says, well, how do we know the way? He says, I'm the way. It, it ain't a road. It ain't a path. 
It's not a designated way geographically. It is through me, the person, the God-man, the Savior of sinners is the, is the way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man. Now keep in mind here. He said, I'm the way. No man goes to God besides through Jesus Christ. No Muslim that believes in Islam and the Koran is ever going to be in the presence of God as a child of God as long as he believes what he believes because he denies that Jesus is the way. He believes that Jesus is deity. I mean, he denies the fact Jesus is deity, and he denies the fact that Jesus is God. That's the problem. They believe that Mohammed is the successor to Jesus Christ, and he is the final great prophet, and that, uh, that uh, Mohammed was the great prophet of the Islamic God, Allah. And they hate Israel, and they hate Christians. There is some Arab Christians in Egypt, six of them this past week, that are been uh, sentenced to to death because they believe in Christ. And there's more over there that believe in Christ than what people know about. But sad to say that many of them have to remain uh, secret and isolated and they meet secretly among themselves uh, for the sake of persecution and dying. But let me tell you something. When the Bible says that God has a people from every tongue, kindred, and nation in the world, he does. From the islands of the sea, I'm an amateur radio operator. I talk all over the world. I talk to a place called, you may have heard about a Clyde, and some of you other folks, and, and if you've been in the Navy, and maybe even traveled down in, in the South Atlantic, down to a place called St. Helena. Island, 10 miles long, 5 miles wide, 4,000 people inhabit that island. It's a, uh, a British uh, Commonwealth island. I talked to them by radio this past week. That is 800 miles from the African coast and about 1,400 miles from the South African coast of Brazil. That is out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and they have a ship that comes there once a month, buddy, to bring them things that they requested before and ordered to, to, for uh, substance and food and whatever they need. If they ain't on the ship and you didn't order it, you ain't getting it out there. They don't even have an airport. They're building one right now, according to... Uh, the internet, and it started in 2010 and won't be finished to 2014. They can't fly a plane in there. Ship is the only way you can get there. And so, you know, the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come to the Father but by me. If any man acknowledges God Almighty, Jehovah God, as Father, but Jesus said earlier in the chapter of John here, he says that you can't know the Father unless you know me. And if you know me, you know the Father. Because they're inseparable, 
and Jesus is deity, meaning he is God and equal with God, because the Bible says, as Paul wrote, uh, I believe it was in, in uh, Ephesians, he said, for he thought, Jesus, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he thought it was nothing less uh, to be equal with God, for he is God and manifested in the flesh of man. <coughs> and he is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now listen to what happens here. We're, all right, so Thomas was straightened out about how the way is and, and how the truth is established. And uh, uh, not only the way, but the truth, but what life is about. Because Jesus said, I am all of those all in one. And he goes on down here and he says that, uh, as he said, that no man cometh unto me except uh, <clears throat> to the Father but by me. Verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. For from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. All right, Jesus said from henceforth, from this very moment forth, it says that from henceforth, he says, ye know him. From henceforth to the disciples, he says, from this moment now, you know God. And he says, you know God and have seen him. Whoa! Did that ever take him a step back? They said, what could this man be saying? Now, they didn't have the full revelation that Jesus was God, but they're being revealed in here as, as Christ is teaching them about it. But yet, even then, they didn't fully understand it totally until after his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the Holy Ghost came, and they said, when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, the Comforter, he shall what? He shall teach you and lead you in all truth. That's when they really had their eyes opened, was after his resurrection. But before that time, he was saying, if you've seen, if you've seen me, uh, he says, you've seen him. Now listen to what happened. Now here's Philip. We, we heard about doubting Thomas. Uh, he was straightened out as to the way. How do we know the way? He said, I am the way. Now here comes Philip, and he speaks up, and he says this. Philip saith unto Jesus, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. In other words, you show us the Father, uh, uh, Lord Jesus, and we will be satisfied. That's what the word sufficeth means. It means to satisfy us. It will, it will quench our curiosity. It will satisfy our, our longing to know. And the Bible goes on to say, listen to this now. Jesus said unto him, Philip, have, ye, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? Philip? Question mark. Have I been so not long with you that you don't even know me, Philip? He that has seen me, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? That was one of the most marvelous revelations penned in the Scriptures. When Philip said, how long is it going to be before you show us the Father? 
Jesus said, if you've seen me in this mortal body, I'm the God-man. I am God and have come down here, born of a virgin, and I am God in the flesh. I have come to be as one of you mortals, tempted in every way, the Bible says, yet without sin. And the Bible goes on to say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How saith unto me, show us the Father. And look at verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Jesus in a mortal body that he was given in that birth of the Virgin Mary to be a man to dwell amongst the mortals down here and to teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, because the Father and I are one, and he dwells in me. That's why he was sinless, because the Father was in him, and he could not sin, because he was the God-man, Christ Jesus. The Bible says that in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, you either believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or just believe it because of the work's sake. The works I've done. I've raised Lazarus from the dead in the 11th chapter of John. We're in chapter 14. You go back, uh, you go back three chapters in the 11th chapter of John, and Jesus raised up Lazarus that was dead three days. They said, uh, roll back that, uh, uh, that stone of that uh, sepulcher there. And when they did, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He came out. He wrapped up in grave clothes, but he was raised from the dead. And he says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, just uh, uh, verbally, uh, off the, uh, as I'm uh, expressing this to you, he says, believe it for the work's sake, for the raising of the dead, for making the blind see and the lame walk. A man that laid at the pool of Bethesda had been uh, crippled uh, most all his life. And uh, Jesus went up to him and said, uh, 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 take up thy bed and walk. And uh, the one who was blind from his mother's womb all his life, he'd never seen it, the light of day in uh, the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. And uh, he heard that Jesus was coming his way. And Jesus took it and told him to go uh, make uh, some spittle and some clay and put it upon his eyes and then go wash in the, in the river. And as he did that, he began to see and he saw for the first time in his life. And he came back and the, his own mother and father couldn't have believed what had happened. He says, uh, and the, the Jews, they, they said, uh, well, what is this that's going on here? Uh, how is it that this man who was blind from birth can now see? And he said, I don't know. I don't know what had happened, but we have known him since his, the day he was born, about, and he was blind, but now he sees. And the Jews uh, got a hold of him, and the chief priest said to him, who, who is it that did this unto you? He says, I don't know. 
but he told me what to do, and I did, went and did it, and I'm able to see. Whereas I was blind, now I see. And later on, this revealed that he was found in the temple praising God, and Jesus was revealed as the one who, who told him to do what he did to get delivered from his blindness. Now, here's an interesting thing about that chapter 9, about that blind man born from his mother's womb. The chief priests and Pharisees, as smart aleck as they were, and know it all about these things, they said that, uh, to Jesus, after he was made able to see, they said, well, who was it that caused this man to be blind? Was it his sin? Or was it the sins of his mother or father that caused him to be blind? You know what Jesus said? He said it was neither, that he was blind, that the glory of God would be manifested in time. He was blind, born blind, and made able to see. By the miracle hand of God, by the Spirit of the Almighty, as a miracle, displaying the Almighty, sovereign work of God Almighty. When Lazarus was in the tomb three days, dead, his own his own sister said, "Lord, if you roll back that uh, opening to that sepulcher, and he's going to stink," it says. He's been in it three days, wrapped in grave clothes. And when you wrap someone in grave clothes, they're totally wrapped up face after you know, People say, well, he was in a, in a coma. He was kind of unconscious. If he had grave clothes on, he was wrapped up from the tip of his head to the bottom of his feet. His mouth was covered over his nose, his whole face. He couldn't have breathed if he was alive. So it would have killed him anyway, wrapped in grave clothes. He was, he was dead. But in the purpose of God, uh, uh, they said, if you had just been here three days earlier, he would not have died. And Jesus even told them, he said, for he had to die, that the glory of God would be manifest. And those that saw him raised from the dead, they went out to all the regions around about, and they spoke about the works of God's uh, miracle working power. And I'll tell you what, they started flocking around Christ. Oh, man, did he have a startup? He's had a following then, for sure. But the Bible goes on to say, it said that uh, uh, in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, else believe me for the very works sake. If you don't believe what I've just told you verbally, believe me for the miracles that I've done that no man has ever done before. And no man has ever done after that as far as the number of miracles that were done and signs and wonders. There has been signs and wonders done since then during the apostolic uh, establishment of the church in the book of Acts. But after that was established in a new covenant and the church was established, the signs and wonders ceased. They were no longer needed. It was established. They had vindicated who they were and who sent them. And from then on, the church was established, and 
From then on, it was built on the premise of Jesus Christ and him alone. And there wasn't a need of signs and wonders to prove anything. The Holy Spirit proved all things to those who were blessed to believe. Now, in verse 12, it says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. Talking to the disciples. He says, And greater works than these shall ye do, because I go to my Father. He's fixed to leave. They didn't understand fully what he was talking about and when he was leaving. But he says, Greater works, sir, are you going to do as well? In other words, you're going to be blessed with the ability to do miracles, to prove that I, you are from me, that I sent you out with this gospel message, and it will be authenticated and proven and evidenced by the signs and wonders. But it says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, and the Father, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But ye shall ask anything in my name, and I will do it. And he promised this to the disciples. Now people say, now, now I want you to keep one thing in mind. In my study of the Scriptures, in the Gospels of uh, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, I want you to keep in mind this. Please. If anything you get out of my message attempt this morning, may this ring true in your mind and heart. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written records of those disciples and what they saw and heard in the public earthly ministry of Jesus Christ himself. And what he taught them and told them to do in regarding preaching the gospel to the Jews only first, and then he sent them out to, to the Gentiles. And these things that Christ had commanded them, the disciples, in that period of the gospels when they were written, uh, is not applicable or applicable. It is not uh, applicable to us today. He didn't tell us that we could ask anything in his name and he's going to do it. If that's the case, I can go out there and in all sincerity bow my head and say, Lord, please give me a new uh, Cadillac Escalade to drive home today. Now, some folks in, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the higher escalon of the charismatic church believe that these things that were told the disciples in the public earthly ministry of Jesus Christ are applicable and are in in working today as well as then. That's not so, because it's not seen today as it was then. It was a record of what Christ taught and told his disciples, but it was not speaking to me as a New Covenant, New Testament Christian. It was told to the disciples. He commanded them to do certain things that people are trying to do today, that ain't working. It's just like go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Who did he tell that to? He told that to the disciples, the apostles, uh, publicly and personally, uh, to them to go do thus and so. He didn't tell it to me. He told it to them, and it was recorded in the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John to go preach the gospel to every creature. If I'm supposed to preach the gospel to every creature, buddy, I better get busy. Now, that's where the missionaries now, 
Bless their hearts, forgive me, but that's where the missionaries have run off to the left side of the railroad track. They've taken that literally that is meant for us today uh, to do what Christ commanded only the disciples at that time to do. And if I'm to preach the gospel to every creature, uh, I, I mean, and, and then Jesus later on, he says, don't throw your pearls out before swine. In other words, don't take that which is precious to you uh, of the gospel that I have brought to you, that I'm the way, the truth, and life, and, and cast it before swine. In other words, those who don't want to hear it. But yet, but then again, you say, well, they didn't say preach the gospel to every creature. What about those who don't want to hear? Oh, we're supposed to preach it anyway. No, no, no. If they don't want to hear it, don't cast your pearls out there where they'll just gobble them up and just go on about their way and, and have no use in for the gospel of Christ and don't want to hear it. As I said earlier, Jesus said, many shall shall hear but not perceive. I mean, the gospel is preached in uh, uh, many areas of the world, but many can't perceive it. And what I mean to perceive, they can't understand it. Because understanding comes, as Brother Buddy said earlier on, it comes by only the revelation that God causes by the quickening of his Holy Spirit. <laughs> verse 15 if ye love me keep my commandments and I will pray the father verse 16 and he shall give you any another comforter and he that he may abide with you forever now that's the promise right there of the Holy Spirit coming he says if I'm leaving here which I'm going to do I'm going to give you another comforter. Now, who was the comforter at that time? Him. He comforted his disciples. He comforted his apostles. He comforted those that were given of him of the Father to believe upon him at that time. He comforted those. But he says, if I'm leaving here, I'm going to send you another comforter. And he says, and that, that he may abide with you forever. How long? Forever. Not temporarily for a short time, not if you just do good, uh, not if you're perfect in whatever way you walk and do things in this life. But he says, this comforter is going to be with you, with you forever. No matter what you do, if you're God's elect, he's going to be with you forever. And he's going to be that which causes you to have remorse and causes you to repent when you do things that are wrong. Because that's the work of the comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. And the Bible says in verse 17, even the spirit of truth is what this comforter is going to be, whom the world cannot receive. Listen to this now. The world out here around about that cares nothing about church, religion, the Bible, and Christ, it can't receive uh, the revelation that this comforter is going to bring forth. For the Bible says that... Uh, the spirit of truth, the world can't receive it because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. That's the second time that Jesus has said that he shall be in you. And he is in you, you that believe. And the Bible says in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. 
And that, that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. In other words, there is going to be a oneness of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit in the believer. Because if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, which all those that are born again of the Spirit of God have, you have the Son and the Father in you as well. For the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, inseparable. They are one. That's the Trinitarian teaching of the doctrine of the oneness of God. The Bible goes on to say, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And Judas said unto him, not a scarlet, but another Judas, said, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not into the world? And look what Jesus said. Jesus answered and he said unto them, If a man love me, he will keep my, my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me, not. Keepeth not my sayings. Now there's an evidence right there. If you love Christ, you're going to keep his sayings. You're going to want to please him. You're going to walk in a way that is honoring to him. You're going to want to speak things that are honoring to him. You're going to want to do things, go places, and, do, and live a life that is honoring unto him. He says, he that loveth me uh, and keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. In other words, I'm not just speaking uh, from my own self as a man. I'm speaking to you as the God-man, because the Father is in me and speaking through me. And the Bible says in verse 25, These things have I spoken to you, being yet present, present with you. Listen now, verse 26. But the Trumpeter, which is the Holy Ghost, there he defined it right there. People say, what's the comforter? And I told you earlier that it was going to be the Holy Spirit. Here's where he defined it. He says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, he says, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I will give unto you, not as the world giveth, Give I unto you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it them be afraid. He started off this chapter. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to conclude uh, this uh, sermon message here by here on verse 27, where it says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why? Because the peace of God he's going to leave with us. And he says, the peace of God is what I'm going to give to you. And it's not going to be the peace that the world can try to offer you. It's a peace that passes all understanding, Paul wrote about. He said that it's going to be joy that's unspeakable that the world don't know nothing about. Let me tell you something, friend. The peace of God does pass all understanding. When you're sick and afflicted and you're laying there on the bed and thinking death is knocking at your door, and there's a peace that comes over you and overwhelms you, that ain't a peace of the world. Uh, that's a supernatural peace that is of the grace and the favor of God upon his people. And he'll be pleased to do that to us. Oh, I heard of this 
to this, and I'll close with this. Uh, an elder up in Mississippi had known a deacon that was in uh, another state. I, I, don't, I think it might have been. I don't know where it was at. Anyway, he was talking to this deacon, and he says, You know, my brother, he was in the hospital, and he had cancer. And uh, it was quite evident that he was dying. <clears throat> and the deacon said to this elder, he said, uh, uh, matter of fact, I just heard this this week uh, by email to me. He says, I went to see my brother, and he says, uh, I went in there, and uh, he was in bad shape. He had oxygen on his face, and uh, he was very pale and very weak, intravenous lines all over his body and trying to keep him going. And uh, he went in there, not knowing really what to say. Uh, evidently, the brother, possibly, from what I gather, was not one who gave evidence of being a believer. But the brother said to him, he said, well, the weather is so-and-so outside. And the brother that was laying there in the bed, who was close to death, he spoke up and he said, what does a dying man care about the weather outside? And the deacon thought a minute, and he thought about maybe what else he might be able to say to him. It might be of some conversation. And he said he thought about what he might say, and then it rang back in his ears. He said, what does a dying man care about that or this? What does a dying man care about anything that don't know Christ? He's in misery. He's hopeless. Helpless. He's, he's decaying away. And death is the monster knocking at his door. The deacon said that he said he just kind of welled up in tears. And he turned around and he walked out of the room. Because his brothers had closed his eyes and kind of went to sleep. And he was stayed quite heaven. And he said he went home, and as he drove home, he thought about this. What does a dying man care about the weather? What does a dying man care about anything? But I'll tell you one thing, friends. A dying man who knows Jesus Christ, or a dying woman who knows Christ, they care about wanting to hear about more about that blessed hope that they have been given in Christ. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I wrote Brother Michael, and I sent him that little clip of that story. And Brother Michael wrote me back. He said, you know, Brother Don, he says, I hope that if I'm ever in that situation where I'm laying in a hospital bed and I'm dying of some disease, and somebody comes in there and wants to talk to me about something, I want them to talk to me about Jesus. And I hope they come in there and they bring a hymn book with them, and they, they just open it up and just start singing an old hymn to me about Jesus and his glory, his salvation, his rich red royal blood that was shed on the cross that's paid for my eternal salvation. Oh, dear folks, what does a dying man want to hear? Oh, if you don't want to hear about Christ, uh, then, oh, how sad, how sad. But yet, you know something, like Brother Buddy said, uh, there'll be those that uh, uh, will take that same man that died without a hope and they'll be at a funeral home or at a church funeral and there'll be those that'll preach him into heaven every time. 
trying to be uh, solace and try to be uh, comforting to the family, and they'll try to preach him in the heaven. I heard a man one time, an old Baptist preacher, uh, uh, had a, somebody in the neighborhood around the church house that hadn't been to church in 25 or 30 years that had a family that used to be part of the church in, in a generation or so back, and they had died. And they asked for the preacher during their last few hours uh, of life to come over and visit with him. And he went over and visited with him, and uh, the, 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 the dear lady who was dying, uh, who had been in church, like I said, in 20, 25 years, and had no interest in the things of the Lord or spiritual matters. She said, would you pray for me? And uh, he said, well, certainly I'll pray for you. Well, how do you pray for somebody like that? What do you say other than, Lord, Lord, may you have mercy. And if, and if not, may May, may we let remain be reconciled to whatever your will is. We can't we can't pray them into heaven. We can't save them. If God don't do a work of grace on their heart and is evidenced by a profession of the mouth that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there ain't a thing in the world you can do. And that same preacher at the funeral uh, two or three days later said. That because she asked for prayer, that she was a, 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 a chosen elect of God, and she had winged her way into heavenly glory. And I can't do that. I can't say things that I, I have no confidence in that that is the truth. But the, the, the preachers try to, they'll do that. And I know that it, they're trying to comfort the grieving and so forth. But you don't comfort people by lying to them and tell them things that ain't so. It may sound good for the time and period, but but you know and I know there's folks out there and family out there that knew different than what that preacher was saying. They knew he was a scoundrel. He might have been a drunk and a foul-mouthed, God-cursing man. And yet the preacher's up there saying that they winged their way to heaven. Now, them people out there that knew him real close as family and friends, they're saying, uh, something wrong with this picture here. But yet, it happens all the time. If I, I don't really relish going and being involved in a funeral of someone I don't know. I have, but I'm very careful to preach the Bible, Christ, and that he is what I told you this morning, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come to the Father but by him. That's the only message I know how to preach at a funeral where I don't know the deceased and, and their spiritual testimony or any evidence of their spiritual life. I'm not going to try to give false hope. I'm going to just preach the gospel and leave it in the hands of an almighty sovereign God who only can seek and save a sinner and transform a life and make him fit for heaven. So may the Lord bless the observations that we've made this morning of his word. May the Lord cause it to ring in our ears.
what does a dying man care about the weather? They don't care nothing about it because they're just one breath away from eternity, which may be in the dregs of hell fire. God only knows. But there's one thing about it. He does. And to those whom he's chose to seek and to save, they're going to come. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They'll not follow another, they'll follow me. Why? Because they know the voice of the good shepherd. Because they've been given hearing ears to hear it. When he calls, they come. May God bless you. Let's pray. Dear Father, our God, in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom we have to do, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God that you preserve for us. We thank you for the gospel and the riches therein. We thank you, Lord, that there, the word of God is unsearchable, meaning that it cannot be searched out into its uh, totality because of the mysteries and of the revelation of it that God is only pleased to reveal to whom he will. And who is it that knoweth all of the things of the spiritual kingdom of God? For there is none, none that knows all. So what we do know, our God, may we be confident that if we share it, it will not return void. It will accomplish what you've sent it to do. I believe that's even so today. That what has been set forth here today, what has been sown here today as seed, it shall purpose what you've sent it to do. It shall be that which shall be reaped in time, the glory and the praise of thy dear name. We pray these things in Christ's wonderful name for such so great salvation he has brought about upon a people who knew not the way but was made able to see Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life. Amen. of the Old School Primitive Baptist. This is Elder D. Martin, Sr. Stay tuned for another gospel message of God's free and sovereign grace. Well, I uh, greet you in that beautiful and that wonderful name above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom we have heard Often this day, amongst the fellowship of the brethren and also in the preaching of the gospel, as we have heard of thus far from uh, Brother Michael's uh, efforts, of which we rejoice in what was spoken in regarding the glorious gospel. 
I'm not going to stand long, and uh, but attempt to share with you a couple thoughts. Uh, I was up uh, with Brother Mike at uh, Grace Chapel, uh, and uh, shared some thoughts out of uh, Isaiah's writings uh, after driving for two hours and coming into church and uh, uh, kind of half uh, sleepy-headed from the driving, I uh, attempted to share a couple thoughts, but didn't have the clarity of mind to say too much, but I thought maybe I would take uh, the same scripture and start with it and look at a couple uh, a couple aspects of it in regarding uh, the Word of God. If you got your Bible, if you want to join with me at the 46th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. A verse that's probably real common to we who, by God's mercy and loving kindness, has been caused, now I say caused, to believe in his absolute and unconditional sovereign and free grace, love, and mercy. To an undeserving lot of people, chosen out of the, all of mankind to be his elect children, appointed, chosen, called, and ordained to be those of whom God the Father had determined to be called out in time by his Holy Spirit, those of who were given to Christ Jesus even before the foundation of the world, whose names, according to the Bible, were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so what a glorious thing it is, is to think upon these things, that God has had a people, even before the foundation of the world, and possibly even before the sun had its round, and its beams even shone forth throughout the universe as we know it. God has had a people, and he has chosen them, not of any merit of their deeds or works or efforts or talents or abilities. But just because he loved them, just as he chose Israel, not because they were the largest of people or the greatest nation among the nations of the world, but because he loved them. And he chose them to be his people. He, in this dispensation of time, in this New Testament era and New Covenant time, has got a people as well. And they are the Israel of God. Out of every tongue, gender, and nation, he's got a people. Out there in the islands of the sea, upon every continent, upon the face of the earth, he's got a people. And he's called them out as he pleases in the generations of time. And they come by way that they knew not. They come by way that they didn't look for. In my own experience, I didn't look for God. God is the one that comes to seek and save sinners. The lowly sinner don't go uh, out seeking to be saved. And, and the only way that he will do so is if God has already quickened his heart and mind and made him awaken to the pains of the Spirit, regenerating his heart and mind, and then causing his new birth to come about, 
that he might be uh, the heir of grace and see and understand and know that Jesus Christ has become his only hope and help in the time of need and regarding his sin condition. And the cause of the depravity of the human nature of all mankind, ever a born of woman, uh, through Adam's fall, there is none righteous, Paul declares in Romans, no, not one. For all have gone astray, and there's none good, no, not one. And so therefore all have sinned and come short to the glory. And that glory is, as far as I'm concerned, interpreted the perfection. All have fallen short of the glory, the perfection of God. And the wages of the sin that all are guilty of is death. But there there is that blessed hope that Jesus Christ is pleased to have favor on you that are given ears to hear the truth of the gospel and believe it in the heart and mind to the transformation of one's person and made a new creature in Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if any man be in Christ, and I'll say, and I'll, I'll use the gender also, if any man or woman be in Christ, they have become a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away, and all things have become new. That means that priorities have changed. Thought patterns have changed. Vocabularies change. Uh, our interests, desires, priorities have all been changed. Old things have passed away. I'm reading to you from the 46th chapter of Isaiah, and in the 46th chapter in verse 10, listen to what Isaiah had written. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done. Now he's talking about God, because in the verse above it says, remember the former things of old, for I am God. God is giving this revelation to Isaiah to prophesy to God's people and to say that I am God and there is none like me. There are many gods in this world, but there's none like this God. This is the Lord God Jehovah, who became Jehovah Jireh, who became Jehovah Jehovah, who became uh, Jehovah Jesus, who is Elohim, uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Holy Writ, of which we believe is the inspired word of God. And the Bible says that, he says, I am God, I have declared, and declaring, that declaring to me is an ongoing thing. He could say, I I have declared, but he said, I'm declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times of things that are not yet done. I'm declaring things, uh, and he didn't say, as many say, well, God knows all things. I've heard so many preachers say 
Uh, well, we know that God knows all things, and because he knows all things, and he's omniscient in that characteristic, uh, therefore, upon what he has known uh, down through the ages of time and the corridors of time, he has determined uh, to choose uh, people upon that premise. Uh, that's, a, that's foreknowledge election. That is a lie of the devil. That is a heresy, and that is not the truth of the matter. Our God, the God of the Bible, has declared the end from the beginning, the ancient uh, times of things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. And his pleasure is, is to choose the people, as I told you about earlier, who uh, it's not because he looked down through time and saw that they would be uh, good candidates. Uh, they would be a good person who would have a good talent and eloquent skill to, uh, to have a nice church and go out and uh, just tell people that uh, it's just a matter of uh, trying to be good enough to please God and that's uh, all you need to do. No, he chose the people that uh, were the most unlikely candidates to be his children. I remember this, that when I was first brought to the knowledge of, uh, of my sin, at the age of 27 in 1971, and God began to deal with my heart, and the gospel was shared with me by a young man, and I was given a Bible to this young man, and, and uh, because I respected him, uh, for the integrity that he demonstrated, I took the Bible as a gift and I took it home. It wasn't too long after that. You've heard this testimony, I believe, Brother Jerry. Okay, but I, but I took that Bible home, and then a few weeks later, I took in, in the solitude of my home and in the quietness of the, of the evening, and my little daughter was in bed, and my, my wife was at a Tupperware party. I, I just uh, remember that just as clear as a bell. I took that little blue Gideon Bible. I opened it up and began to look through the pages of it. And it had the Romans Road in the front of it that we're all familiar with uh, from being involved in uh, churches in the past that uh, were uh, those that were out uh, soul winning and trying to take and persuade people to become Christians. And I read in there about how that the Bible said that all have sinned. And... Uh, uh, that all the fallen swords of the God's glory, as I mentioned earlier, there's none righteous, no, not one, but uh, uh, the gift of God was eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, I had been to Sunday school as a young boy when I was probably from about four to the time I was eight years old, and that was about the end of my church uh, history. After that, my mother called a divorce, and we moved away from where we lived, and I lived with my mother, and with church life was not part of our life. But now here I am, 27 years old, been married, and got a small child, a daughter, and a friend to give me this little Bible book, and here I am reading this uh, in God's divine timing in the solitude of my home this particular night, as God had determined to be, uh, as he has declared here. Uh, the, the things that not yet to come to pass that were going to come to pass. Uh, I'm talking to you about one of those things he was talking about right here. I took that little book and read it. My heart was overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus Christ uh, would be the one 
that would give me life eternal and sins forgiven. And I fell down on my knees and began to weep. And I said, Lord, I said, God, and I never had prayed a prayer other than uh, lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord if I should die. You know, and, you know the, the old prayer that mamas say usually with their children. That's the only prayer I ever knew. And I hadn't said that so long that I even forgot what it even was about. But this particular night, I got on my knees and I began to weep. And I said, Lord, if this be true, if the Bible be really true, then I ask you, God, to have mercy and forgive me. Because I didn't have any problem that particular night of knowing that I was a sinner. Any time before that time, Brother Jerry, I was satisfied with my life. I was going through life. I had a good job. Uh, I was uh, doing fine. I had hobbies I was satisfied with. I thought uh, that I had a handle on life. But this particular night, God stopped me in my mad pursuit of the way I was living and arrested me in my path and stopped me dead in my tracks and brought me to my knees. And he caused me to call out unto him as father for the first time in my life. I addressed God of this book as father. I said, Father, if that be true, forgive me of my sins. And I began to weep like a, a baby. And there was a weight that was lifted off of my body, heart, and soul like I've never experienced before. And, and I am persuaded that the Holy Spirit of God that had got my attention and had regenerated this inward man and made a new creature in here by putting his Holy Spirit had caused me to be born of the Spirit that night. Now, I know not everybody has the same experiences I had. We're all in the unique in God's determined purpose. We've all been brought by a way, uh, by a pathway that is strange one to another. Not one of us in this room is at the same place of Christian maturity in the realm of the things of God. We don't all agree and know the things uh, that we've been taught by God along the way. We can agree on the most part, but there's things that you've been taught, Brother Jerry, uh, and have had a handle on that uh, God uh, may not have been revealed to me. So Christian maturity is unique in itself, and a preacher of the gospel needs to be aware of that when he tries to minister to people. That... Uh, in my 38 years of trying to look at this book and gain something from it, and I trust the Holy Spirit has given me some revelation of it, I know that everybody here has not looked at it possibly that long and come to an understanding of the, all the things that I uh, seem to have gleaned from it thus far uh, have come to the same place. But there is one thing for sure. We have come to a place to know that God is the only one that can transform the heart and mind of an individual. He's the only one that can deliver one from depravity's curse. He's the only one uh, that can do as he pleases in the armies of heaven, and he rules the reign of uh, the reigns among them and also among the inhabitants of the earth, and there's no man that can say unto him, Why doest thou this or so? 
He, we know that he's the only one that is the true potter that takes out of one lump of clay and makes one the vessel for uh, his glory and honor and another vessel fit for destruction, if it so be, his will. We do know that. We do know that he's an almighty God. So this little group here together has come at least to that point and agreed that far because our Bible says that this same God who declared the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. There's not anything that God has determined, decreed, and ordained to do that he will not bring to pass. He will do all his pleasure. No man, no human creature, nothing on earth or in heaven shall circumvent his work of grace. There's not enough demons in hell, uh, demons to be destined for hell. There's not enough demons in the realm of the angelic host, uh, and the devil himself cannot alter the works of God's grace, mercy, and loving kindness towards his elect children chosen in Christ Jesus. Now, in saying that, that God has declared these things, and that his counsel is going to stand, and he's going to do those things, in the future that are not yet done, I want you to go to the New Testament with me. I want to take a look at John chapter 9. I'm going to look at two occasions that God had declared in his determined purpose to bring to pass that uh, is supernatural and is beyond the understanding of the human intellect. In chapter 9 of John's Gospel, I'm reading chapter 1. And Jesus, he passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now Jesus was going and about his public earthly ministry, and he passed by this certain area. And he saw this man, which was blind from his birth, the Bible says, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples, uh, they, they were really puzzled about this man's condition and wanted to know, well, how come he's this way? How come he was uh, blind from his uh, uh, birth? Or was it his... Uh, Sin, or was it his parents' sin? What, what, what's, what's the cause of this man's infirmity? And look what happened here. Jesus said, and Jesus answered, Neither had this man sinned. Now, we know that there's no man that is exempt from sin. But what Jesus is saying here when he said, uh, Neither has this man sinned, he's saying that neither is it the man's sin that caused the problem of his infirmity, and he says, nor his parents, but that the work of God should be made, what? Manifest in him. This man, now listen to me, this man that was declared in Isaiah's prophecy in time, this is something that was not yet to be brought to be passed, brought to pass in Isaiah's
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.